Uh-oh. Welcome to God is Open. I, I think uh, I'm trying to look to see if I got audio going. It seems like it's working, and so that'll be good. Today on God is Open, we are going to be doing a debate review of this debate. John O'Rourke, Patrick Hines versus Drew McLeod, Eric Kemp, immutable pre-creation divine decree question mark so maybe how's it going david so maybe um uh that's they, they probably ran out of room for the debate title putting in all the names so i think the debate topic is actually a little bit different we're gonna be actually skipping the initial round so it looks like how this uh, debate is set up they had some sort of uh introduction and then after each introduction then there was a quick rebuttal by each side before the other introduction is given, which is probably not the best way to frame a debate because the opposing side side comes off automatically in the debate as the defensive party rather than a offensive party, like going on the offensive rather than the defensive. So in frames in, in terms of framing of a debate, it's probably not the best setup. But hello, everybody. Everyone's popping in here. It sounds pretty good. So again, we're going to be skipping the Calvinist, Div divine determinism side. It's their standard arguments. So what's probably a little bit more interesting about this debate is, number one, the format and the arguments on the anti-immutable uh, pre-creation divine decree side. So the, the official debate title was, Does the Bible Teach an Immutable pre-creation divine decree. That's a, that's a good good uh, title of a debate. That's a good framing of a debate because if you focus a debate on what the Bible teaches, then you're free to ignore all the questions where they're asking you about your personal belief because your data set is the Bible. And so your, your personal beliefs are immaterial. And uh, we do see that in the cross-examination, what I saw a little bit where the Calvinists, they, they always like to do that where they start focusing on, well, do you believe this? Well, how could God do this? It's like, well, you're, you're just asking me my, my opinion about things now. Our data set is the Bible. And Calvinists like to bring it to the personal dimension. They like to stay away from the data sets, the Bible, how the Bible functions, how the Bible operates. And having a debate title, does the Bible teach such and such, allows you an opportunity to redirect the debate with something easy, something very easy like, it's, it's immaterial, my belief on this topic. Uh, I don't see anything in the Bible that supports this or doesn't support this. And uh, for, for the sake of the debate, we'll just say whatever you say is true, um, whatever, that's fine. And uh, we'll move on. And, and so what? So what is your point? And if your point conflicts with the Bible, <laughs> you're, you're in some problem. But we will actually start this so we could actually start hearing what's going on here. I'm a little frazzled. My kid flooded my bathroom today. And so I got water everywhere in my house. And so it's like, oh, that happened like right like five minutes ago. And so mm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit shooken up. You might see a little bit of uh, nerves and stuff going on. But when it works, that's life. You, you move on. And true, you can back me up with whatever time we have left. All right. Okay. Sorry, I didn't realize I was muted. Sounds good. Yeah, you got uh for for the rebuttal, you have a five minute rebuttal. So let me let me know when you're ready, and I'll start your time. Okay, go ahead. All right, you got it for five minutes. 
What I find interesting about their opening statement is that their number one point, and this is something. So right away, this this is the first time Eric Kemp and Drew McLeod are allowed to give positive arguments. And the frame of this is an immediate response to their opening statement, the, the Calvinist opening statement, we'll call it. And so it, it's framing them in the defensive right away. So how I probably would have handled this portion, if I knew this portion was coming up like that, is I would re-emphasize the things that they emphasize. They actually do a really good job with their intro, uh, pointing out some various things and aspects of this debate. What, what, what does it take to prove this immutable divine pre-creation decree? Yeah, what are those elements? And then you could start talking about how they presented their evidence. Does any of their evidence actually meet the standards to prove that specific thing? And you need to frame it for the audience so that the audience, every time the pro side, the, the Calvinist side, every time they give a verse, <laughs> I'm all shook up according to the comments here. Let's pull that on screen. I'm all shook up because my, ba my bathroom flooded. Uh, but every time the Calvinist pulls out a verse, you want the audience to automatically be thinking, how is this relevant? And so by framing the debate, you're able to control that thinking. So if you start your immediate uh, rebuttal as an offensive, it's saying, oh, watch, watch how they use these verses. They listed this verse and this verse and this verse. And none of those verses, if you look at them, actually teach this immutable divine decree. And uh, that's what they're attempting to prove. That's what the debate's about. And none of their proof texts actually prove that point. They're going after tangential things. They're trying to have straw men. They're trying to uh, debate things like, oh, does God predestine some things? Does God make some things happen? We all agree on that, but that does not prove an immutable pre-creation divine decree. Great, God's greatest glory bathroom. <laughs> I, I was contemplating using a clip of all these, these headlines for the intro to this podcast that just just highlights the modern depravity that we see in society because that's what the Calvinists believe is decreed for God's greatest glory. All the, all this sickening stuff. And, and the one thing we don't get into in this debate that I, I noticed is the meticulous detail that they're claiming God must control in order to get things accomplished. Every, every act of sodomy from time eternal, why? Because in their minds, the Calvinist minds, if God didn't control every act of sodomy from time eternal, God could not have gotten Jesus crucified or act as a sacrificial lamb. That's their logic. And we, we see that go on. But we'll just keep going and uh, we'll see what they say for their opening rebuttal. Something that we'll get to in our opener and I'm, uh, hopefully we have time to get to in uh, some question rounds there is that they immediately must make a distinction between God's moral will and decreed will. They have to, uh, what we would say, create a category where there are two things going on, where God wants both something to happen and God, he wants the opposite thing to happen. Uh, and there were several examples of that, but uh, we would say that that, uh, that distinction, that category has been created and we don't see uh, that as in. I don't. I don't like this language. Uh, we would say this, or we would see this, because it's very. Uh, it's it's very. It's not confident or forceful. It's kind of wishy-washy. 
if you say that language is just not used in the Bible. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible where there's this uh, secret decree and it's in conflicted with uh, his is a real decree. And then he has a moral decree and these are in conflict. You don't you just don't see that in the Bible. God often his will is often resisted throughout the Bible in multiple contexts. And the Calvinists need a mechanism. They demand a mechanism. They, they have to have some way to dismiss these texts. And so they come up with this idea that no one, no one would ever come up with this idea on their own unless they're coming to the text with this presupposed theology. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't, they wouldn't say, oh, there, there must be some sort of secret decree and then a moral decree. And, and then uh, any time that his decrees are thwarted, it's this moral decree. No one would do that. This is not normal reading of these passages. And you just got to point that out, that our side, our side is the normal reading comprehension side. Their side is the straining to try to find proof texts in the Bible. And we can't just be using the passive language, as I'm saying here, uh, it says passive language. It's not, oh, we see it like this. No, it's just not like that. People don't read it like that. And uh, then they're on the defensive. They have to prove why that text means what they claim it means. Oh, we, we get to a part in the debate in which it's pointed out the, the multiple times in Jeremiah where God says, I did not command it, nor did it enter my mind to command it. This is just not part of his command. And uh, the pro side, the Calvinist side says, oh, that's his moral decree. And I don't know, I, I, maybe I didn't catch it there. There it didn't seem to be a response directly to that saying, where do you see that in the text? Where is that? Where does the text make these distinctions? And what does that mean? I didn't command it, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this. What does that mean? And then force the point. That's one other thing that I would have liked to see more is that Drew McLeod and Eric Kemp have some really good questions that they throw in their intro, but the audience loses track in an audio debate unless you reinforce those questions at every opportunity. You say, hey, here's my question for you. And then you ask it at every opportunity. And then the audience will visibly see the people avoiding the question. They don't want to answer the question. And it's a, it's a funny thing to do. Yeah, explicitly in the scriptures. It is logically deduced from some of the scriptures. Uh, for instance, with uh, Joseph's brothers and saying, uh, God, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Oh, that must mean that God meant what they were going to do for evil. God also meant it for evil in some other way. Since they did it, God must have meant it for evil as well. But they also, in another uh, decreeable sense, uh, meant it for good. And we would say that that is just uh, imposed upon the text, that it's just more simply understood that man has intentions and God has intentions. And that doesn't mean that God secretly has uh, man's intentions in heart in a different way as well. Uh, the word plan was used a lot, but plan doesn't mean a meticulous, immutable, divine decree. It just means God has plans. Of course, we believe God has plans. That that needs to be emphasized every chance you get. So uh, anytime that they throw out a verse, what they should have done in the debate, if I, if I was doing this debate, if I was responding, every time they would ask me, oh, what does this verse mean? I would start with, well, even if this verse means exactly what you should claim this verse means, it doesn't prove that God had some sort of immutable pre-creation divine decree. And that statement, I would I would latch on to that statement and say it every time before I respond to one of their verses, because then the audience will see what they're doing. They're, they're going on red herrings. They wanna pull you to different verses that argue different points rather than the actual debate. They're doing the Moton Bailey tactic in which 
they have this position that's indefensible that there's some sort of immutable pre-creation divine decree. And what they want to do is they want to actually fight the battle over, oh, does God control current events? And uh, that's an easier fight for them. But then they make the automatic leap in their minds back to this, oh, if God controls current events, that somehow means he has an immutable pre-creation divine decree. So reinforcing that to the audience that none of their proof texts have anything to do with what they're trying to prove uh, would be very devastating to their side. That, that's what I would do if I was running the, the counter argument on this debate. And he will accomplish those plans. That just doesn't mean that he uh, plans everything and he wants everything to happen the way that it does. Uh, that, God, that Jesus was crucified and that God planned for Jesus to be crucified does not mean that God determined the evil desires of the men who crucified him. Uh, God is uh, wise and powerful and smart enough to figure out ways to get his what he wants accomplished, to use divine providence, to use the uh, independent wills of men to get his uh, goal accomplished. So this would have been a perfect opportunity for framing. So everything Eric Kemp said is correct and accurate and a very good point. But what he could have done is framed it differently. He, he might have been able to say, tonight you're gonna see two approaches to the text. You're gonna have this uh, Calvinist side and what are they gonna do? They're gonna argue that God is incompetent. God can't get things done unless he has some sort of immutable divine decree. And then we're, you're gonna see our side who thinks that God is innovative, God can accomplish. And remember the Bible actually talks about this. this. This is what I would say. The Bible actually talks about this. There is an immutable decree of God throughout the Bible uh, to bless Israel and bless the world through Israel. This is the one, one immutable promise as Hebrews reads that God is dedicated to fulfilling. And what happens when we see it play out in the Bible? You know, time and time again, God tries to establish Israel as a priest nation and they keep rebelling and turning against him. So he has to innovate new ways. He threatens to kill all of Israel and then create a new Israel through Moses. And John the Baptist, when he's dealing with Pharisees, the Pharisees were of the mindset of the Calvinists. Like the, the, the Calvinists say, oh, we, we can't think of a way God can possibly do this unless he controls all things. That's what these, these Pharisees were arguing. And John the Baptist's counter argument was, is that, is that God is innovative. God can do things that you don't expect. He's smarter than you. And so you think that he can't kill all of Israel and still accomplish his plans. He can raise new children of Abraham from these rocks. And so you're going to see two sides tonight. Again, this is what I say. You're going to see two sides tonight. You're going to see the Calvinist side, they're going to be claiming that God can't do things. God's incompetent. He's incapable. And then you're going to see our side. We side with John the Baptist. John the Baptist thinks God is innovative. He's creative, and he's not going to be bound by your limitations that you think, oh, he must control every single baby diaper in the world, or else he can't get Christ crucified. That That's the logic we're dealing with. That's the logic we're dealing with. We're not dealing with with people who are creative. I was just, uh, I was watching one of those, uh, oh, those funny videos, those pitch meetings or whatnot. And it was about the Green Lantern. And uh, one of the jokes was that the Green Lantern has this ring that could do anything. This ring could turn into anything and be anything. And what do the writers do? They make it be a sword, a gun, and a race car. So what, what does that prove? Does that prove that the Green Lantern is, is incompetent? It proves that the, the writer of the Green Lantern script 
I, it's not very imaginative. The Calvinists are those writers of this script. They're not very uh, imaginative. John the Baptist, he's a little bit more imaginative. He can figure out ways that which God can encounter or can accomplish his plans despite, despite man, despite how man thinks God must do things. God is innovative. God can accomplish. And so tonight you're going to see two positions. Our side believes that God's innovative and can do things. And their side that says God can't do things. God's not innovative. He's not creative. And he must control everything or he's incompetent to do anything. That two sides. Which side is the biblical side? That's what I do. And he is able to do that without decreeing the evil desires of men. Uh, yes, man's hands did uh, one thing and God's hands did another. That's right. That's our position. That's that's what we would say it is. Man's hands are doing something and God's hands are doing something else. Yeah, what, what you see in this debate over and over is the Calvinist side talks to the audience as if the provisionist side does not believe the things that the provisionist side is their default position. Like God can do things. God can control things. God can make things happen. They, they just... They just they build a straw man. They're they're not even debating their actual opponents, and that also could have been pointed out a little bit more. You're not debating us. Our position is God can do things, and stop pretending. Stop it. Stop pretending like we think that God can't do things. We think yes, God can. I know that's a hard concept for you to understand, Calvinist. God can, in fact, do some things. That was one of my favorite uh, debate clips. Was uh, uh, Bob Enyart debating. Uh, what's that guy out of California's name? But uh, it's, it's the, the right path or the narrow path. And he's trying to convince him, yeah, God can make a rooster crow. Uh, that, is, uh, that is something that God can do. Uh, that's not particularly uh, powerful. You don't need too much power to make a rooster crow. And uh, the Calvinist guy just wasn't buying it. God must control all things or else God can do nothing. Uh, yes, whatever God plans, he will do. We agree, but that doesn't mean that all things are planned through immutable divine decree. Um, yes, God will accomplish all his purposes, but that doesn't mean his purpose is a single immutable divine decree of whatsoever may come yeah, to pass. That needs to be pointed uh, God out. God knowing over all things does not over. mean he immutably decreed all things to happen. That's a category area. We have to see evidence of, of those things being equated. And uh, God frustrating the plans of men is our position. Uh, men make plans and then God frustrates them. Uh, how does men? How do men actually make plans? You, you need to you need to frame the debate. You say, audience, listen to me. Every time they give a verse, every time they pull up a proof text, think in your mind: Does this proof text prove an immutable pre-creation divine decree? And then you need to repeat it because in oral debates, you you need to repeat things over in order to emphasize points. People people learn through repetition. So you might say something like, "Let me say that again." Every time they bring up a verse, just ask yourself in your mind, does this verse prove an immutable? That means it can't change. Pre-creation, that means this decree didn't happen yesterday. It happened before all of creation. Uh, divine decree. You know, and what's their definition of the decree? Their definition of decree is something that can't be thwarted, can't be uh, gone against. But in the Bible, we see decrees all the time failing and uh, God having to deal with a wayward people. So every time you hear a Calvinist bring up a verse, think those things. Does this prove what they're attempting to prove? Or is it a straw man? Or is it a red herring? Or, or are they just throwing verses out? They're, they're, they're confusing the issue because they don't actually have any proof text. 
And that's one another thing I like to point out in debates is they're desperate for proof text. If their verse doesn't say what they're trying to prove, and it's the first verse they threw out, that means they don't have any other verses that prove what they're trying to prove. They're desperate for proof text. And so they're reaching, they're reaching, they're trying to find it in a verse where it just does not exist. If God is immediately decreeing those plans. Hmm. Where's my time? Yeah. Yeah, you got uh, a minute and a half left. Do it. There. I'll, I'll, two minutes. Yeah, uh, so a couple of things here. Uh, it was said in the opener, Psalm 33, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, his plan of his heart to all generations. So Eric's already touched on this a little bit, but just because God has plans and he thwarts the plans of men doesn't is not evidence for a pre-creation immutable divine decree. And it would make, in fact, God frustrating plans that he immutably decreed, which uh, 100%. doesn't make sense from our perspective. And one thing that Not was from our too, perspective, from maybe we'll touch on this, uh, 2 Peter uh, 3, 9, where it talks about God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The word there actually isn't. isn't. So it should, needs to be emphasized that those proof texts have nothing to do with what they're trying to prove. And they, they legit use them as proof texts. And so this is a failing on their part that needs to be exposed. Their tactics, their tactics are at debate. So in, in Calvinist debates, their debates are about framing. Their debates are about, oh, you don't believe the Bible and I have all these verses and I know all these verses. And you'll actually hear it in their opening statement where they'll throw out a Hebrew word once in a while, like, oh, and, and the Hebrew word definition has nothing. It doesn't add anything. It's just like a, a, a flex, like, oh, I know the Hebrew word over here. And it doesn't actually add to their position. So they're trying to signal to their audience that they're experts, they have scholarship, and you need to tear down that frame. You need to put them on the defensive when it comes to that. Say, they're throwing out these verses. These verses have absolutely nothing to do with what they're trying to prove. Why are they doing that? Why would you come to a debate and throw out proof texts that have nothing to do with what you're trying to prove? Could it be, could it be that they just don't have any proof text? Could it be that they're desperate for proof text? Could it be that their position is morally, intellectually bankrupt? Could it be that maybe perhaps our, 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 our partners here, our debate partners are operating with less than integrity, less than uh, integral uh, purposes? Willing, but in the sense of delos, of desires, but it's planning. So God is not planning for any to perish. Um, and so I feel like that sort of undercuts their position regarding God having plans um, as far as like an unchangeable plan. So notice this language. I feel that our position is we see that it's, it's kind of mute language. It's it's a muted language. So it's, it's not very forceful. And the audience perceives you as weak. Uh, they, they perceive your position as not as strong because you don't have confidence and, and you know you're trying to be nice in a debate but niceness in public debates never work how you would expect them to work debates typically work by charisma through exposing uh, people's intellectual shortfalls it, it doesn't work through uh, discussion tactics where you're trying to have uh, an intellectual discussion with people who actually care about the debate matter and, and not planning that other people will perish. And I think this is going to be a little bit difficult, uh, you know, and we'll talk about some of this stuff, but, but any time in which we bring evidence against the position of a divine decree, immutable divine decree, that can be just thrown into the moral will category. And um, 
also a passage that comes to mind is where uh, Jeremiah says in uh, that he will relent concerning the good that he had said that he would do to it. So God's making plans and then he is changing his plans ostensibly in response to whether or not nations repent. Um, that's all I have to say about that. All right. Reminds me of a Weird Al song. It is now time to open the statement. So Tim and I open the statements for you guys. Um, let me know you're ready, and I'll restart your time. Okay. So I'm starting this one. Here's right here. where the gold is. Here's where okay. the gold is. Let me just scroll down here. Okay, I'm ready. Tell me when to go because I'm not looking at the screen. I'm looking at my document. All right, no problem. All right, you, uh, you, you're able to start now. You got it for 10 minutes. So the, the question of today's debate is, does the Bible teach a divine pre-creation immutable decree? Any other question related to divine foreknowledge, free will, et cetera, might come up, but it needs to be directly impacting on this question at hand. So we have a uh, that's not enforced through the debate. So I would have liked it if that was enforced, but it kind of wasn't. They're like, oh, what's your view about is the future known? And then it's like, well, my view is this, and Eric Kemp's view is this. They're like, how, well, how, how does this have anything to do with an immutable pre-creation divide decree? I, it's a, a kind of a red herring. Agreed prior that the Westminster Confession accurately reflects this decree in question, which reads, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. The London Baptist Confession has the word decree instead of ordain, but since they are essentially synonymous for the purposes of the debate, we'll be using the word decree because this is the word most commonly used of the divine king's decrees. So if our opponents were to present explicit inductive scriptural data for evidence for this immutable decree, so here, here's we might expect to see four things. Gold. One, some word akin to decree or ordain, which means to command or order. Two, a word that implies or explicitly states that this is unchangeable and fixed. Three, pre-creation language, likely past tense language. The words four, and lastly, all or all things or some other equivalent of whatsoever comes to pass. So these are reasonable items that we would expect to see if the Bible taught what our opponents and the Westminster Confession assert that it does. In fact, the Confession attempts to do this by offering us five proofs of this alleged immutable pre-creation decree. So let's take a brief look at them one by one. And as we do, look to see if it contains any of the items above. So the one problem here is you're immediately going on the defensive with your opening statement, whereas it's almost guaranteed that they're going to go through those verses with you during the cross-examination. And so now might be the point where you actually wanna provide a positive case that's very strong and forceful that God's decrees are thwarted all the time. There's a point in this debate where uh, the Calvinists start talking about, oh, God's strong will, his bulimai. There's a verse uh, where the lawyers reject the bulimai of God for themselves. They reject the will of God. The, this, this is pretty common in the Bible, people refusing God. God being frustrated in the Bible by human actions. God, God getting uh, emotionally frustrated where he, he uh, gets tired of repenting. He's like, I'm going to stop repenting. I just get kill you guys, kill you all because you guys are just, you just keep leading me on. You just keep saying you're going to do something. You never fall through. I keep saving you. And it's just not working. It's just not working. And that's the story of the Bible. It's just, it's everywhere. And so you can make a strong, forceful case uh, pretty easily and then allow 
uh, you might be able to cover like one or two of those verses to say, you know, these this is probably their their best proof text, and it just doesn't say what it says. And then you could reinforce the rule every time that they talk about a Bible verse. Uh, think in your head: Does this Bible verse is it even about an immutable pre-creation divine decree? It's the first question you ask. They pull up a verse about God knowing sparrow, but no sparrow falls apart from the will of God, which is not even in the Greek. There's no word for will, but that's that's a different issue. But they pull up a verse that says that. Um, let's pretend. Let's pretend God controls the death of all animals on Earth. That still wouldn't prove an immutable pre-creation divine decree. That's a stretch by any any uh, piece of the imagination. I was reading Josephus recently because he's a very interesting Jew. He's a Pharisee, and he's he's one of two Pharisees where we, we have extensive writings from in the first century. There's the Pharisee named Josephus, right? And there's a Pharisee named Paul, uh, two, two Pharisees. And his position is that nothing happens by chance. But what does he mean by that? God gets surprised. He, he talks about God getting surprised about human events and having to respond to humans. So his idea was that God had active control of the world in a direct way to use men to accomplish his goals, even though sometimes they attempt to thwart his will. Sometimes he's surprised by their actions, but he's still intimately involved in the world. It's not this Calvinistic idea where God controls our inner thoughts uh, to meticulous detail. God controls when we go to the bathroom and anything like that. It's just about God's controlling world events. He's, he's meticulously involved in our lives. And that is an option. And it's an option that doesn't involve an immutable pre-creation divine decree. And it's an option that explains all their proof texts, even assuming that that team, their, their, their understandings of those proof texts are accurate. So even granting their own readings of their own proof texts, their position is not proved. They're not proving an immutable pre-creation divine decree. Red herrings. Romans 9, 15 and 18, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Is God having the divine right as king of the cosmos in choosing whom he has compassion on and whom he hardens evidence of this immutable pre-creation decree? I don't think so. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh no, you should have you should have went over one by one. Well, is this a mutable decree? And then you know, is this a pre-creation decree? No, is it a decree in the sense that Calvinist would have it? No. So then you reinforce to the audience what the debate's about, what the other side believes, and so they can't moat and bailey you. They can't be fighting a battle that the debate's not about. God currently controls all things on earth, thus immutable pre-creation divine decree. You cut that off by pointing out time and time again. I, I did it in the Madden debate in which we were debating eternal, ungenerated, uh, a non-discursive knowledge within God that's uh, immutable and it can't be thwarted. It's non-falsifiable knowledge within God. And so my goal was to repeat that time and time again until the audience understood what his position actually was. So he couldn't do this thing where he pretends that his position is something else and argues for that something else. He has to actually defend his own position, which the Calvinists, they don't do. They resort to this, oh, God's controlling current things. Therefore, immutable pre-creation divine decree, we win. Uh, but if you continually point out what their actual position is, they're going to have to try to defend it at some point. They're going to have to try to explain 
why none of their proof texts have anything to do with their beliefs. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Is celebrating God's infinite knowledge, wisdom, and inscrutable ways somehow explicit evidence of a divine decree that locks everything in <laughs> to work out only one way? Context would indicate this isn't even remotely what Paul has in mind here. In fact, the very thing that Paul is celebrating here is the preceding summarizing verse, which reads, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul is not celebrating the majesty and all he has of a secret immutable decree. Hebrews 6, 17, which has already been mentioned, gets a little bit closer by checking one of our boxes when it uses the word unchangeable, which would connote immutability. It reads, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Few would deny that God makes some immutable, unconditional promises. But what does this have to do with having one immutable decree of all things before creation? It doesn't. Ephesians 1.11. Yeah, that's that's maybe where I'd insert um, just the logical fallacy of composition. Just because a car window is made out of glass doesn't mean the entire car is made out of glass. Just because God decrees one thing or has one immutable decree doesn't mean all things are immutable to be decreed. And you start using the language of fallacy to say this is a logical fallacy. They're arguing the fallacy of composition. And then they have to defend it. Of course, in their back and forth, they do try to defend Oh, it's not a fallacy of composition because did you see that uh, the thing that God's decreeing has a bunch of details in it? Therefore, it's not it's not the fallacy of composition. You'd still point out, yeah, what if God controlled all things for 10 years prior to the cross and 10 years after? And before that, he didn't control things. And after that, he didn't control things. That is a possibility that precludes an immutable pre-creation divine decree. That is something that could explain the data if all the verses, if for some reason we're going to uh, take those verses in the Calvinistic sense, that would explain all those verses. You, you have not proved what you claim to exist, a immutable pre-creation divine decree. I always like to point out that Greg Boyd was an open theist Calvinist for some time, believing that God makes real-time decisions in the moment, uh, controlling all things, um, that, that's not inconsistent with, you know, uh, open theism. That's, that's not. That is open theism where God makes new decisions. That precludes an immutable pre-creation divine decree. These people exist. Uh, Drew McLeod and Eric Kemp do not have to, in this debate, defend their particular positions. You could say, look at these people. Look at Josephus. Look at Greg Boyd, the Calvinist. They could hold these verses exactly how you do. And it still does not prove what you think that the Bible states. None of your proof texts do. You've brought nothing to the table that even suggests an immutable pre-creation divine decree. Then comes the closest of all the proofs. It reads, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. A few points in favor of our opponents in this verse. Number one, it uses the word all. And number two, it uses past tense language like obtained and predestined. But we believers are the ones who have been predestined here and who have received an inheritance. There is also no pre-creation language. Additionally, it may use the word all, but it also uses the word works in the present tense, which is not a word like decree or ordain, but allows for some conditional elements. It likely means something like works in or works with, since we know God does not personally cause or author sin. Tonight, or today, if you live in the future like I do, 
our debates, our debate opponents bear the burden of proof. And I submit to you that this is a very tall order, one that will likely require our opponents to deduce this decree from a systematization of passages rather than pointing to clear inductive scriptural data. When God says things like they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as a burnt offerings to him, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind, they'll likely be required to, as they have already, offer you categories like prescriptive decrees versus secret or eternal decree in order to unfalsify their claim that God has immutably decreed everything. Because then they can say that's God's prescriptive decree and not his eternal decree. How could God make it any clearer in his word for the decretal theologians to accept that God did not decree the sacrifice of so many children, even unborn children in our day, if not to say, I did not command or decree it. This one passage alone should give any Christian pause in affirming such an exhaustive pre-creation decree. So let the- that's critical. That's critical. So uh, there's there's uh, he he set up how they're going to operate. They're going to look at something that very clearly says God didn't command or decree. It didn't come into his mind. He'd never do this. And he said, well, how these people are going to treat it is like this. And he laid out how they're going to treat it. And they do treat it in the debate. And there's a question that goes along with that. What would the text have to say to make you think that uh, uh, this is about the divine decree, what, about uh, God's decree being thwarted? What would have what would the text have to say? And that question needs to be repeated over and over again until it's very clear that their view is unfalsifiable by the Bible. Their view is free, free floating from the Bible. It doesn't matter. The Bible could say literally anything. And they're not going to accept what the Bible says. I was dealing with the, I was at a clubhouse the other day and I was dealing with this lady who didn't think that God tests to know. Whereas the Bible says explicitly over and over again, God tested the people of Israel in the wilderness to know what was in their heart. God tests. And then there's a preposition to know. I said, what does the Bible, what would it have to say? What combination of words would the Bible have to say to prove to you that God tests to know? And she wouldn't answer the question. And uh, you just you just need to keep pushing that, pushing that, pushing that, because it becomes painfully clear to the audience that their view is independent of the Bible. The Bible could literally say anything. Their view trumps whatever combination of words is found in the Bible. And that that is the key to debating these Calvinists, is to show them that their championed book, the Bible, which they think they got their data from, is irrelevant to their views. It, it doesn't matter. And this debate specifically about that, does the Bible teach this specific thing? You're not going to find any of their proof texts where you don't have to already come to those proof texts with this immutable decree in mind to get that out of it. Them seek to persuade our audience of this claim if they can. Perhaps the main barrier to having a productive dial, uh, debate on the topic of God's divine decree is the mountain of theological baggage that comes with each word in the debate question. In order to cut through this baggage, I will be referring to God as king and this king as having divine rule. I'm sure our Reformed brethren would agree with us that God is king, that we are his subjects, either loyal or disloyal, and that this king, Yahweh, has divine rule over his subjects and all of creation. Kings make decrees. But do the king's subjects always follow those decrees? This is great. This the decrees gold. from their sovereign determine what they will do? Such a concept is absent from scripture. We all know this from the Sunday school story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They did not follow, 
their king's decrees. In Exodus, Pharaoh orders that all Hebrew sons be killed, but the midwives disobey this decree. In Proverbs 31, a king can disobey his own decrees. The apostles even acted against the decrees of Caesar. Now, you may say that those are earthly decrees from earthly kings. How do divine decrees differ from them? First, I would ask, what purpose has revelation? If God has used the analogy of kingship, of being a ruler, one who rules, if God has used this picture of human affairs to describe himself as king over creation, king over Israel as king of kings, does this not accurately describe his relationship to the world? In other words, if God as king is so wholly different that he is unlike any other king you've ever heard of, he is unlike any king in the biblical record, such that his decree actually means immutable and meticulous divine control. Why does the analogy of uh, the analog of king to describe himself? Why, why use that at all? If, is he purposely misleading us? Does he want us to misunderstand? Second, it is. I, I think that is actually one facet that's missed in this debate is that the Bible is advocacy. And what's, what's the point of advocacy is to get someone who you're advocating to to believe something. And so the Isaiah passage that we always talk about, Isaiah 40 through roughly 48, or maybe through 53, the Isaiah passage is actually addressed to a wayward Israel. They're set up as the judge. And the point of it is to convince them that God is the true God. It's it's, it's advocacy. And, and the Calvinists are like, see, this verse means God decrees all things. And dec God decrees all things. He's attempting and fails to convince Israel he's the true God in the very passage in which you're claiming it means that God decrees all things. That's what's going on. God is failing yet again. A story of the Bible uh, that Israel is stands for wrestles with God. Story of the Bible is Israel rejects their Messiah. Israel rejects their king. Israel rejects God and his rule. And in Isaiah, he's pleading with them saying, watch, watch this. I, I tell you I'm going to do something and then I do it. And so I'm real. I, I'm here. You're you're in Babylon captivity. Hello. I said I was going to do that because because of your sin. And then I th then I did it. And that's proof. I'm I'm God here. I I told you about this. These other gods they don't do that. This is evidence to convince a wayward audience of something they don't accept. And then they say God decrees all things. No, he doesn't. He's pleading with them. He's trying to get them to believe something they don't believe. Try it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work historically. It's a special pleading to presume that divine decrees are unlike any other kind of sovereign decree without bringing biblical evidence to the table. It will be on our opponents today to show through biblical evidence that God's decrees are wholly unlike any other decree in that every subject will follow them. Indeed, we actually receive the opposite notion from the biblical data. The Bible gives us evidence that God's decrees, while divine, and we ought to still do them, can be disobeyed by his creation, yeah. even by his own people. In Romans 1, Paul says that God has shown himself, made himself known, has declared his attributes from creation. His creation know him, and they reject him. In Jeremiah 19, God says through the prophet that he is rejecting Israel because they rejected him. They are offering their children as sacrifices to Baal, which is something that I have never commanded or mentioned. I have never entertained the thought. The ESV says, it did not even enter my mind. So we have the Israelites able to do things God does not command nor decree, things that did not enter his mind for them to do. Also notice the condition that Yahweh is rejecting his people because they have rejected him. We see the same evidence in uh, 1 Samuel 8 when Israel asked the prophet for a king. Yahweh declares to the prophet that Israel wants an earthly king like the other nations because they have rejected me as king. They are abandoning me and worshiping other gods. 
is abandoning, not rebellion, against God's decree. Uh, all good points. Uh, what is it, uh, Amos or, or Hosea, where he says, they set up kings, but not by me. They they set up princes, but I knew it not. They keep doing it. They keep rebelling against him. He's not involved in these decisions. And his point is, they should have consulted me. They should have got with me. And yet, how are they rebels if they are always passively obeying God's decree? So not only can Israel reject God's decrees and not do them, but they can reject God as king and not follow him. In what way is Israel abandoning Yahweh if he is decreeing their abandonment? Is that not continuing to follow him? I guess our Calvinist brothers must see God as decreeing Israel to do things he does not command them to do, including rejecting him, abandoning him, and sacrificing their babies to Baal. Further, in Deuteronomy 30, God says, This command that I give today is not too difficult or beyond your reach. What does difficulty or effort have to do with following God's command if obedience or disobedience is decreed before the foundation of the world? How is this command that Israel can do or not do different from the decree? Is the decree secret and unknowable? And if so, where is the biblical evidence for this secret and unknowable decree? Yeah. I hope we will see some today. I hope. Ezekiel 18.23 tells us that God does not pleasure in the death of the wicked, but instead would find pleasure if the wicked would turn from their wickedness and live. If God desires the wicked to live, why did he not decree them for them to repent so they could live? Or maybe our Reformed brothers will argue that God has decreed that which he does not desire. Rhetorical questions only work if you repeat it over and over, directly interfacing with them until it's very clear that they're ignoring your questions. And so we, we throw out a lot of questions in this, uh, this opening salvo that uh, I don't know if I, I saw all of it. I was listening. I was doing other stuff too, multitasking. But some of these questions don't reappear. But you should grab one or two critical questions and keep asking them until it's painfully obvious what their side is doing. In 1 John 2, 16, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, are not from the Father, but from the world. If God meticulously decrees all... Yeah, so I have a problem with this uh, secret decree stuff. So um, normally, like, I can't always get what I want. So what do I want? I want to eat unlimited ice cream. Um, but guess what? I, I will also get really fat if I do that. So that's a really bad idea. And so... You know, I, I have tr I face trade-offs in life. It's not like I have a secret decree not to get fat and a, uh, a, a verbal decree that I love ice cream. No, it's just that some things are mutually exclusive. You have to prioritize. And yes, God wants all people to be saved, but not at any cost. He doesn't want to put us in heaven with a bunch of awful people that we we would it would turn heaven into hell. It's it's God wants to save all people, but He doesn't want to save people that are that are terrible. He doesn't want to save people that reject him and hate him. Uh, that would that would make things terrible. So I think better than a secret decree and a revealed decree, how about the concept God doesn't always get what he wants? And that's the story of the Bible. Again, over and over again, we see God wanting something and the people rejecting it. God doesn't always get what he wants. He, ha he has workarounds. Don't get us wrong. And John the Baptist, again, says that God is innovative. And so if God has plans to bless the world through Israel, God could do innovative things. He could kill them all, John the Baptist says. He could kill everyone, wipe everyone out, and guess what? Raise new children of Abraham from these rocks. He says, oh, you Pharisees, you didn't think about that, did he? Did you? 
God's smarter than you. So you think God might must meticulously control things? The Pharisees were big into, like Josephus, were big into God's meticulously controlling all things. And Jesus makes jabs at these Pharisees. He said, you, you know this uh, Tower of Shalom? You know this uh, Pontius Pilate killed these Jews? You think these people are the worst people? Some things, sometimes things just happen. But it, unless you repent, this too will happen to you. So he's taking jabs at these people who think that God does control everything in meticulous detail. Uh, but the idea is God can do things. God's more innovative than you. And so even if you can't contemplate, oh, how could uh, God get Jesus crucified unless he controlled every bell movement of every Roman soldier uh, eternally? Uh, I, well, God's not going to be limited by your lack of imagination. Again, these, these people are the writers of the Green Lantern movie. And uh, you have unlimited power with this green ring. And what do you use it for? You use it for a sword, a gun, and a race car. They lack imagination. And so framing the debate as that, uh, you should you could say every time that the Calvinists here talk about God doing something, they think that the only way God can do that is if he meticulously controls everything with this immutable divine decree from all eternity. They have a very low view of God. Uh, our view is that God is innovative and can, in fact, do something. So anytime they argue that, look at this one thing that God did, therefore God controls everything, just understand what they're saying, what they're saying, they're admitting publicly, is they don't think that God is capable to perform. All that comes to pass in the world, what distinction of from the Father versus from the world is there? I hope our Reformed brothers can explain how an action the Father immediately decreed to take place is not from the Father. All right, guys. Thank you so much for that open statement. Appreciate it. All right, uh, John and Patrick, you guys are up for your five-minute <laughs> rebuttal. Let me restart This is a very odd time. setup where they're just like sitting together. I guess it saves on bandwidth. I don't know. All right, let me know when you're ready and I'll start your time. Okay, we're ready. All right, you got it for five minutes. The reason that we interpret Ephesians 1, 11 and the all things and also Isaiah 46, 10, um, which does say my counsel, uh, the term etah means decree See, that, shall stand. The Hebrew term oh, you threw it, means oh, continue last, a Hebrew word not change. must mean what you claim pleasure. it means. Um, the reason that we interpret that to encompass all events is the constant and emphatic emphasis that the scriptures make on even the seemingly most mundane things that take place in life. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lot. It's every decision. is. So notice, notice the structure of their argument. Their, their structure needs to be called out. They go from God decrees small things in real time, therefore immutable divine pre-creation decree. It's a huge, massive jump in logic. It doesn't logically follow from the lord acts 17 26 they constantly do it blood, all their proof texts are about it on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings matthew 10 29 so about that verse uh i pulled up the word in a cross reference tool uh, i i don't know if i could go back like 30 seconds or whatever that's that acts verse in which he had pre-appointed times anytime the bible uses these words predestined for no pre-appointed what those words in normal language outside the bible mean is uh, they the jews said something at some point in time therefore they predestined something 
you know, they, they specified an answer to the question previously in real time. They predestined it with, with the normal Greek word for pro-horizo, predestination. And uh, the Jews in Acts, they foreknow Paul. What that means is that they've just been acquainted with him previously. They've had interaction with them previously, these these pre, uh, preordained times or whatever in this verse that they just quote. Uh, elsewhere, it's used where um, just someone someone at some point called someone to come into their room. You know, it's, it's not saying that these things are eternal or these things happened long ago. They're just saying this event that we're talking about right now happened in the past. You know, the Jews at, in the past knew Paul. Uh, someone in the past answered a question. That's what these words mean. And they're given these super theological definitions. They're hijacked by Calvinism. They're like, oh, sovereignty. Uh, not the dictionary definition of sovereignty. We got this uh, a special definition of sovereignty that's not in any dictionary. And uh, yep, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the, the Bible, when it uses anything, any words like that, like uh, the Pankratos and Revelation is probably the closest you're going to get to all controlling. They're like, it definitely means what we what we mean by that word. 1030, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of... God can count. Okay, God can count. Um, step step one, God can count. Step two, uh, step three, immutable pre-creation divine decree. You got it, guys? That's the argument. The Lord, like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. James. God controls streams of water. Step one. Step two is... Uh, step three... Immutable pre-creation divine decree. 4.13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Indeed, you ought to say if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And then God could stop us from going somewhere through, in context, he could bring about the apocalypse. Uh, step one. Step two is... Uh, Step three is immutable pre-creation divine decree. Proverbs 19, 21. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. People think something in their hearts. And uh, step one, and then that includes uh, God can override their counsel. Step two. Uh, step three, immutable pre-creation divine decree. These passages teach us that the outcome of the casting of every lot, the location in which every single human being would ever live on earth, the death of every sparrow without exception. God controls dice rolls. Step one, step two, yeah. step three, immutable pre-creation divine decree. That, this, the very number of hairs this, on our heads. This is this is the level of debate. Decision people make about so where it's, they it's will go, Moat and Bailey. Moat and Bailey. They don't want to actually argue their actual beliefs. They want to argue a very different belief that God controls all current events, and uh, that's easier for them to defend because the Bible often uses language that could be hyperbolic. It could be. Uh, in, in, uh, could be idiomatic. It could actually be, as Josephus thought, where God is meticulously involved in the lives of all creation. And that seems to be part of the point of the Job revelation, how Job is given a whirlwind tour of the earth. And God says, 
look at all these things that I'm doing. I'm doing a lot of things. And so you just have this small perspective. You don't see this bigger picture. I'm intimately involved in creation. So Josephus, I think, had a rational view. God does control things. God is meticulously involved in our lives. But also, Josephus says, God can be surprised by human actions. God just deals with it and then forces things to uh, occur per his plans, per his, where he wants things to go. Jonah, he, he wants Jonah to go preach Nineveh. Jonah says, ah, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I cheese it. And he starts running away. And God's like, okay, I'm going to stop this in its track. And, it's, and then he has this big fish swallow Jonah and then spit him up on Nineveh. It's like, okay, so you could, you could have the fish or you could have the preaching to Nineveh. You get to decide, um, but you're going to get the preaching to Nineveh either way. And uh, Jonah's like, I'll take that preaching with Nineveh. Send there, and what they will do there all take place only by the will of God. Further, that there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel shall stand. It is unchangeable, that Hebrew term, kum. If God only decrees the big stuff and only intervenes regarding big stuff, why does scripture repeatedly and emphatically emphasize that this plan of God, this etzah of God that is spoken of, that he says... So notice that signaling. They're like, we're the experts. We got the, the Hebrew. We're, we're spitting out Hebrew words. And just if we have access to the Hebrew, we will know the true meaning of the Hebrew. And that's that's not how language works. That's uh, Joel, Joel Hoffman has a book, God Didn't Say That, in which he talks about how language is contextual and it grows and it changes meaning. And uh, there's nuanced meanings. Uh, language is not one-to-one -one correlation with ideas. And so context actually rules rather than word usage. And so they want to focus on, uh, it's, it's funny, I saw I saw on Facebook uh, one of these Calvinists, the guy I had on once, uh, what's his name? I, I don't know his name offhand, but I had him on and uh, he was on Facebook saying, does anyone want to go over the syntax of a specific verse with me? to try to see if it proves Calvinism. The syntax is not going to help you. What's the context? What's the immediate point? Who's the audience? What do they believe? What is the verse trying to prove to that audience that they don't already believe? What is going on in context? That's more important than context. It's more important than word usage. Words are only, they only gain meaning from context. Sentences only gain meaning from context. One, one sentence I use all the time is, my wife's the most attractive woman in the world. What do I mean by that? Is it a joke? Am I lying? Am I saying that she's physically the most attractive woman in the world? Am I saying I'm the person, I'm more attracted to her than anyone else in the world? There's a huge number of possible meanings and the only way you're gonna have a definitive meaning is context. And that's what we need to do with these proof texts, put them in context. After, of course, saying, okay, let's just pretend every time they give a proof text, let's just pretend this verse says exactly what you say it means. It doesn't prove an immutable pre-creation divine decree. It's a non sequitur. Okay, now we can talk about your verse, but it just doesn't mean what the point of this debate is. It doesn't mean your position. It doesn't prove your position. You have no proof text. Declares the end from the beginning and is unchangeable. If it declares the end from the beginning, it had to be before the beginning started. It is this plan that encompasses everything. The, the biblical text is arguing from the lesser to the greater. And that, that might actually be a point. And so... If God is tracking the lifespans of all sparrows, I, the point is that you guys are more valuable. And so he's probably tracking your lifespans as well. And so that is a valid point, but it's it's not definitive. It's not something you're going to hang your hat on. And uh, it's definitely it's definitely not outside the realm of idiomatic speech as 
as uh, Eric points out, he points out that this this is wisdom literature. It's to give practical advice to people about general operations about the world. It's not like a metaphysical truth. It's not trying to tell you something about the mechanics of how the world works. It's, it's supposed to give you general practical advice of how you should think and function in this world. It's wisdom, wisdom literature. Um, it emphasizes that God is the one who is ultimately behind even the most inconsequential of events. And it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Now, I think I just heard uh, one of our opponents say that God actually did not predestine that the crucifixion of Jesus would happen. And it sounds like, based on what they said, that it's a real possibility that the promise of the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head, the entire sacrificial... Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yes. That Genesis 3 is definitely about the cross and Jesus. Uh, yep, that's just definitive. That's just a fact of the text, apparently. Um, but what they're doing is a moralistic argument. And so they know that people are very Christocentric, we'll use that word. And so it's like, you guys think that the cross might not have happened. So how I would absolutely respond to this every single time is that not me, Jesus, not me. I, I don't need to have any opinions about this. Jesus says it. Jesus says, um, not your my will, but yours be done because there's a real possibility God could have done his will. Uh, there's a real possibility when God, Jesus said that God could send the legion of angels to save me, that he actually could do that, that Jesus believes it. It's not my opinion. It's Jesus's. So either you have to take Jesus's word for it or or we can take your word for it. So if I had an option between Jesus's words about uh, the, the necessity of the cross or what's this guy's name? Pa Patrick Hines's word. I th maybe I'd say I'm going to weigh them a little bit like. Uh, I'm going to go with Jesus. So uh, I'm going with Jesus on this one. Uh, the cross was not immutably predestined. It could have been avoided if Jesus so wanted. A good thing he did. Good thing he did. Uh, lucky for us, he didn't want that. But Jesus's opinion is he could have subverted the cross. System, everything illustrated by the Exodus, every messianic prophecy, everything about the coming of Christ, his crucifixion, Isaiah 53, everything that would happen to Jesus, Psalm 22, his very thoughts. Psalm 22 is definitely about oh Jesus. God, why have you forsaken me? That all of that could possibly have failed. Oh, that is absolutely Psalms 22 could have failed. I, has he ever read Psalms 22? There's if if the whole crucifixion never happened, um, let's just pretend that and let's pretend an atheist uh, he wanted to critique the Bible. Uh, there's zero world. We always talk about possible worlds in Molinism. There's zero possible world in which an atheist points to that chapter to say this is an unfulfilled prophecy. Zero worlds in which that's that that's even a possibility because it's just not a prophecy. It's not a prophecy in the sense that they want it to be a prophecy. It's parallelism. Certain events. Remember that time that Jesus had his disciples go out to buy swords in order to fulfill the scripture. He's like, okay, we got to do this thing uh, in order to fulfill uh, the scriptures. Go buy some swords, and then they go do it. That doesn't sound like eternally divine. Uh, predestined acts that no one could thwart. That sounds like they're actively trying to do things in order to fulfill scriptures. And what they meant by fulfill scriptures in those times where you're paralleling previous events. Those previous, previous passages in the Bible actually typically have zero to do with prophecy. And some of these things are switched around a little bit. Maybe, maybe Paul's talking about Hosea and it's about Jews. 
and he'll change it. He'll make it about Gentiles, something like that. So it's it's near parallels. It's it's not a prophecy. It's not it's not Nostradamus back there. Uh, King David is not Nostradamusing Jesus. It's parallels. Similar things happen. The truth of events are established by patterns repeating themselves in the Hebrew mind. Absolutely an intolerable position. Also, Genesis 50, 20, we were told that, well, man has his intentions and God has his. The point being, Joseph, a man who suffered terribly, a man who suffered unspeakably uh, at the hands of his wicked and sinful brothers, a man who was unjustly imprisoned, he understood when he came out of the crucible. So a great way to frame any debate is, you're not debating me, you're debating Jesus. And so if we went back to that point, uh, you think that the crucifixion is not predestined and that you can be thwarted. Well, not me, Jesus. So then they have to, that puts them on the defensive. And then they have to explain why Jesus meant something different and then secretly agreed with their position. It's it's hilarious to do. It's funny to do. And it really destroys uh, their framing. They want to frame it. Oh, this is so terrible that you believe this thing. And then they have to defend why Jesus doesn't believe the thing that they just said was terrible. Ah, it's so funny. Well, that trial that what his brothers had intended, the Hebrew term chashav, what they intended, the same term is used about God. God chashav for good. So yeah. it's the very same, self-same. And the word being used, this is the Genesis reference. Um, the word being used is like weaved or crafted. God is crafty in the Bible. God is able to accomplish things through manipulation and crafting, crafting. You don't have uh, craftiness, cleverness in a God where, who decrees all things and who uh, makes everything happen by meticulous determination. This is a specific attribute of a deity who uses his, his extensive knowledge in order to practically bring about things, make things happen. God's craftiness. And that's, that's the word being used here. It's a concept over and over again in the scriptures that's often conflated with God's knowledge. People are like, oh, see this? It says that uh, God's uh, understanding is infinite. You know, that understanding is not knowledge. It's not talking about data set in God's mind. It's talking about his, his processing ability and putting things together, practical things together. It's about his craftiness. God can think. God can do. God can accomplish. These people, they don't think God can accomplish. If God didn't control everything, he couldn't make the crucifixion happen. That's their logic. Action that was intended by one for evil, intended by God. To I'll go back to the debate review. I'm just kind of ranting about various things that they're talking about. Uh, uh, just kind of little tangents. But it's a lot of that stuff you'd probably don't want to pull up in a formal debate. You want to refocus it towards the, the topic of the debate. And sometimes, sometimes it's good just to grant what they're saying. Um, uh, that verse absolutely doesn't mean what you claim, but for the purposes of this debate, we'll say it does because your point's irrelevant. It doesn't prove your position, even if that verse says what you claim it says. And then they have to come up with a reason why it actually supports their position. It's it's a, it's a good tactic. Save their lives. Um, John, do you want to? Yeah. Okay. With, with regard to, you know, if a particular thing is decreed, that doesn't necessarily mean all things are decreed. That's what was, was argued. There's, there's an issue with that logically. If we have, for example, in Acts 4, that God had, had determined that Herod, Pontius Pilate, all the Gentiles and all the Jews, what, what they would do, that there are so many things that are required to, to be planned for that to take place. 
the 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 birth of Herod and Pontius Pilate that they would rise to power. All these every single time they had to use the bathroom throughout their entire lives. Every single cough, <laughs> every single cough of Pilate had to be predestined, or else or else he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it, even though there's nothing. Let's say Pontius Pilate was named something else. He is Pontius Pilate and not Pontius Pilate. He's Pontius Pilate. Would that thwart God's plan? Did, did Pontius Pilate had to be? Did he have to be named a specific thing? And that's one of the these things that these people like to do. They 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 lose sight of what's actually predicted. So let's pretend let's pretend there's an Old Testament prophecy about the specific date year of Jesus's birth. Just the fact that there is a specific year that Jesus is born doesn't doesn't mean that God can't pick different days. So the days, the times, the people to whom he's born. You know, if Mary wasn't around, would God, he wouldn't be able to find any other pregnant lady. He couldn't do what John the Baptist said God could do and make a pregnant lady from the rocks. Uh, that's out of the question, right? Uh, I like the John the Baptist example because it's biblical and it points out that God can, God has some power. He, he could, he could make a pregnant Mary out of the rocks in order to have Jesus in a particular place at a particular time. He doesn't have to control everything. Pontius Pilate never even has to be born. Uh, that's not that's there's nothing in the text that requires Pontius Pilate board, nothing like that. But they'd like to assume that they like to assume that all these details must have been part of the plan. Rather than you remember, I, I asked Bart Ehrman about this, uh, about this verse, and Bart Ehrman just said, Well, I, I think he's just he, he's not like a determinist or anything, he's just pointing out that killing Jesus was not subverting God, which was a very real view that they had to fight against. Um, here you got this uh, potential Messiah. And the Messiah figure is killed um, by by the Jews, by Pontius Pilate, by by these people. And did God fail? It's a real view you have to confront. And and his response is, this was part of God's plan. That's that's what's happening, not divine determinism. Groups of Gentiles and Jews, their whole lives, their parents, grandparents, great grandparents, all getting together, marrying, having children, everything, and, and then of course them surviving and living to the point. Where they wanted to call for Jesus' crucifixion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are billions of things that had to be ordained in order for the one event of Jesus' crucifixion to take place. We were told in Jeremiah 19 about the, uh, the sacrifice, of, uh, sacrifice of children that God did not decree it. But clearly, since our opponents deny the distinction between uh, a moral and uh, decreed will, um, this, this text is clearly talking about his moral will. He says, I did not command it or decree it in order to come into my mind. He's saying, I don't want you to do that morally speaking. But see, what happens is, is that if you don't make the distinction, you end up equivocating. You commit the fallacy of equivocation where you say, see, a divine decree is not, of all things, is not true because look. Yeah, one, one thing uh, Jeffrey Bailey points out, in that time, anyone that was perceived to absurd power was killed. I don't see how this proves determinism. There's an interesting story, I think it's in Josephus, where there's an entirely different Jesus that uh, rises up as some sort of apocalyptic figure in the same sense that, uh, you know, Jesus Christ did. Um, and he was killed at the Roman invasion about 70 AD, I think is, is when that story is taking place. He's killed by a stone there. So there was an entirely different Jesus in a, in a very similar ministry to Jesus Christ at the time. These things are happening, you know. Uh, it's It's not... It's not like things can't happen unless God controls all things. You know, there's people out there that are willing to do things, work with God. The word used in the verse that they try to use to prove that God determines all things is synergy. God works all things together. With who? He works it with us. He works with us to accomplish his will. This says, 
God doesn't decree this particular thing, but it's using the word decree in a different sense, a moral decree versus a divine secret decree, which is what the debate is about tonight. All right. <laughs> so um, this is a perfect opportunity to repoint out the question, what does the text have to say in order to make you think that the text says that God's decree has been, or that God's decree is thwarted, that God never decreed this. It never entered his mind. This is something that God didn't want. What, what specific words would you have to see in the context to make you think that? And the answer that they have is the text could say anything literally, and we'd still hold our own position. So it's, it's irrelevant. This, this distinction they're making is irrelevant to their position on the text. The text could literally say anything. And the follow-up question to that, if you actually get an answer is what makes you so sure well number one first of all was any decree of god's or was it was this not decreed by god in any sense of the word and they'll say yeah not his moral decree and then you'll point out you're just pointing out right now that his decree can be thwarted so where in the text do you get this idea that there's this uh, determinist dec decree and then moral decree and these distinctions where is that found in the text you've already admitted god's decree or his his will can be thwarted and some things are not part of his degrees. You've, we've already got established that. Where do you get that this specific verse is operating in your specific manner? Would any normal reader read it that way? Thank you so much, guys, for that rebuttal and opening statements. Good stuff, guys. So now we're moving into the fire round, man. The most favorite, the favorite part of every debate is the cross-examination. So this is going to be great. All right. Once again, these cross-examinations are 20 minutes each. Team Alpha, affirmative team, will be starting their cross-examination of uh, Team Bravo, Drew, and Eric. So that's it. You guys have the floor for 20 minutes. Okay, Drew and Eric. Um so I experimented at, at one point um, with using the Calvinist own tactics against them. You know, they're like, oh, everything's the anthropomorphism. Well, then maybe all your proof texts are petromorphisms, turning God into a lifeless idol. You know, uh, is that a thing? And what what about this uh, thing where they say, oh, that word, that specific word that we're debating about doesn't mean the word we're debating about. It's a different word. It's like, well, can't you do that with any of their proof texts? Maybe, maybe that same standard should apply to when they say God... Uh, has these dice rolls, you know, God controls these dice rolls. Maybe control is a different word altogether. That's just his, that's just his uh, moral decree <laughs> that the dice rolls are certain ways. I don't know. Maybe something to experiment with. Maybe not necessarily in the format of a formal debate. Um, one of the things that we wanted to really try to emphasize uh, in our opening statement was the fact that scripture emphasizes the mundane, the lot being cast, the, the death of sparrows, where everyone's going to live, where they're going to go in the future. Um, if God only intervenes or if his plans are only for some things, why does the Bible repeatedly and emphatically emphasize that the plan of God encompasses what seem to be the most mundane and inconsequential events in all of existence? So no, notice their framing of the debate. They're framing that uh, Eric Kemp and Drew McLeod don't believe that God intervenes or is related to mundane events. That's not a position that they publicly stated. It's also a position that's irrelevant to the debate topic, but it's going to be entertained. Let's watch this. Yeah, I'll respond to the the, the lots cast thing. So um, Proverbs 16, 33 is the one that you guys quoted. It says, into the center is the lot cast and from Jehovah is all its judgment. 
So we would agree that God is sovereign over the outcome of lots used to seek his will, but there's nothing about this outcome being set before creation. This might have been a failure of uh, Drew McLeod to pull up the language of the Urim and Thurum, which was their divine lot casting devices. The Will Duffy position is that this is actually about divining God's will using chance, which was a very real process and that happened throughout Israelite history with the Urim and Thurim and in other contexts as well. What does God want? You could do fleece setting. Uh, I think we've talked about fleece setting before. It's like, oh, if this fleece is wet over here, then I don't know. But this is a very real way that Israel tried to divine the will of God by using these normal mechanisms. So it very easily could be uh, an affirmation to Israel that these types of attempts to divine God's will are real things. It, it, the verse could be about that, but also could be just, you know, God, things that you think happen by chance, God's involved with those things. And which is probably my position uh, that it's probably about, you know, God's involved with more than you think. Where, where does Proverbs 16.33 mention apart from his will? Well, I, I'm I'm not saying that it's apart from His will. I'm saying that God God is sovereign over lots used to determine His will because that's so how it's not lots all were lots. used. So it's not all lots. It's just some lots that are that are um, from the Lord. I well, I would say that in context, in terms of what Proverbs sixteen thirty three is talking about, if lots are being used to seek His will, then God is in control of that. Yeah. Okay. God's will encompasses the death of every sparrow. Can we deduce from that logically that he's also sovereign over the deaths of eagles, blue jays, and robins? So you're using, what's interesting is that you're- So Eric Kemp makes a great point. But before he says that, the verse doesn't actually say that these sparrows fall apart, fall fall with uh, apart from God's will. The word will, um, ask a Calvinist a follow-up question. What Greek word is used for the word will? And then uh, they'll scramble. They won't know. They're not familiar with their own verses. Turns out that's a supplied word. And so the verse actually says no no sparrow falls apart from God. So is it apart from God's will? Is it apart from his knowledge? It's probably the knowledge because in context, God's counting our hair. This this is the verse. This is the context where God counts the hairs on your head and no, no sparrow falls without him. Right? So it's about probably about active monitoring of the world, which is God counting and acquiring knowledge, which is very, very much uh, counter to any divine eternal decree from all eternity. God counts to know would mean that their Calvinist position is in fact false at face value. Uh, but they, they don't see it like that. And this question's entertained as if the verse is actually talking about sparrows falling apart from God's will, which is okay. God, God's integral in events that happen on earth. That's a valid position. We're using wisdom literature, which is to give general principles of life to as a, did like as a didactic theological teaching. And that's just not what the So Jeff Bailey has this thing. I'm still trying to ask God a question and get five times dice rolls at the same. Um, <laughs> in college, my brother had a Calvinist roommate. And his, his roommate's trying to figure out a course for his life. Like, oh, should I go into accounting or should I go into biblical studies? Something like that. And so he's telling my brother the story. He's like, so I grabbed this apple 
and I determined whichever way it rolled, that's the way that God predestined uh, me to go. You know, so he drops this uh, apple, has this experiment. He's telling my brother that he's like, and my brother said, "Well, why don't you drop the apple again and then see what happens?" And the Calvinist, I think, he was in instantly instantly brought to account on the absurdity of what he's doing. If the apple were not to roll the same way. That means what he was considering God's divine decree was not, in fact, God's divine decree. It, it actually was useless information that you could get different results from each time you try. And, but uh, that, that's where his Calvinism brought him, that just reading everything into minute events. Because, of course, everything is predestined. We don't control everything. God's controlling everything. So why not read tea leaves? The genre is meant to do that. The, uh, you know, Solomon is giving wisdom to his son. And he over and over again says, you know, hearken into my ears and you will never depart from my words. Does that no, literally no, is, mean this... he will never depart from his words? No, it's, it's that's a great point. General these, these principles. Are, these are, and so that always point out in, in the context where there's absolute statements that, that aren't actually absolute because it forces the Calvinist to come to terms with reading comprehension. You know, you, you have different standards when you're reading text that you want to be your proof text than you do when you're reading normal text, normal text. One good example that um, I, I think that occurs in this debate, but it's not brought up is they, they use this divine language about um, God can't be thwarted in Isaiah. You know, uh, who's going to stand up? His will is supreme. Things like that. Those are valid Bible verses. They exist. But in ancient uh, Near Eastern religion, a lot of those phrases were used about Marduk as well, where his will is Anu, and no one, no one could oppose his will. No one, uh, he he, do, he does all things. He he's, he's he's sovereign over the world. These type this type of language is pretty common, but no one reading, and no, no ancient reader, and no modern reader is going to be reading those passages and come to Calvinist conclusions about what those phrases mean. This is not apparent in the text. In the text, you see Marduk overthrowing the supreme god and then vying for power and creating coalitions. That's what you see. And then you have these, these absolute power statements. His will is Anu. That means it's it's unchallenged. You know, just the normal reading of these phrases do not have Calvinist connotations. They only have Calvinist connotations when the Calvinists are reading the Bible and really need a proof text to prove that their theology is in the Bible. Then these same phrases mean their special theology and nothing else. If you have any other view about that, you're probably wrong in their views. And that must have been, it must have been that the ancient Israelites had this idea of God, that God controls all things with the eternal divine decree, uh, immutably from time eternal, every single leaf that falls ever. That must have been their view because there's a, there's a passage in Isaiah that says no one could uh, resist God's will. Yeah, it must, that must be what it means. Didactic words from Jesus. These aren't from Solomon. Matthew 10, 29, and 30. Um, it's, that's not that's, a single that's sparrow, what not Jesus a single is doing. Sparrow. He's doing wisdom literature. He's doing wisdom teaching. Yeah. What, and I would and say, you also quote in Proverbs. Yes. What, what is and I'll the say teaching this, that Jesus is teaching? In, yeah, in what Matthew? is the teaching there? What is, what is, the, I would, what is the principle we're supposed to get from Matthew 10? That's a good question. Yeah. So Eric and I are in agreement that God either permits or determines whatever comes to pass. So when Jesus says no sparrow falls outside of his will, he either permits or kills the sparrow. But that doesn't mean that there's that that's evidence of a pre-creation of mutable divine. Yeah, I, I think it's just uh, he actively monitors these things and he's he's aware of these things happening. 
and uh, they don't happen without his knowledge. It's it's the same context of counting hairs. No sparrow falls apart falls apart from God is what it says. And so uh, McLeod has a, a good answer and it works. And uh, we'll see how they respond. Okay, Isaiah 46.10 says, declaring the end from the beginning, uh, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel, uh, that Hebrew term ethah means plan or decree, shall stand. The Hebrew term kum means continue last stand and not change. My decree shall not change and I will do all my pleasure. The text explicitly there, there it says is. that the plan- And so Marduk, his will is Anu, and no one could, no one could oppose his will. But no one, no normal reader of the text is going to come to it and say, oh, the ancient uh, Babylonians or whatever, they saw Marduk of, as this Calvinist god that uh, predetermines and controls all things. No one reads the text with that, those assumptions. They understand that this is uh, hyperbolic language. This is idiomatic. And what it means is, you know what? He's the most powerful being. No one's going to oppose him. He, he's, he's practically, practically uh, the most powerful People just can't fight against them. That's that's what's going on here. But they want it to be metaphysics, saying that there's some sort of divine will that encompasses all things, and it can't be violated. So when Paul says that there, there, I wish I want to go to meet you guys. If some way there's in the will of God that I could go see you, you know, I'm going to take that way of will. It's it's not the will that Paul thinks, in which God's will could be multiple things. There could be different paths in God's will that allow different outcomes and God will go with what people decide. It can't be that will. It must be this uh, Calvinistic defined determinism of all things. That's just not what the Hebrews thought about God. God was an individual who responds to individuals, works with individuals, and in context, in context of Isaiah, is attempting very attempting frivolously. He doesn't it doesn't succeed too well attempting to get them to believe that he is the true God. That's God's attempt. That's what's going on in the passage. That's that's the context. And or decree of God declares the end from the beginning and it continues last stands and does not change. What's your exegesis of Isaiah 46 10? Should I should I take this one, Eric? Sure. Um so yeah, some, some additional context here regarding some other passages. So what we agree that what... So again, so here's how I'd start every single time. Let's just pretend this verse means whatever you're claiming it means. It does not prove God has an immutable pre-creation divine decree. Now we can talk about the text, but just understand that this is a red herring, has nothing to do with the debate topic. And uh, it's, it's, it's your attempt to... Use some sort of text, go somewhere uh, to sidetrack the debate to a different issue entirely. So uh, just just assuming this text means what you claim doesn't prove what you're trying to prove. Ever it is that God declares will stand. So I declare the end from the beginning. And so there are a few questions here. The question is, is from the beginning, what is the beginning? And from doesn't mean before. And then <laughs> yeah, who is yeah. he declaring it to? And I think that if you look at the context of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, through 46-ish in this in this section. So that's one thing that should should actually be emphasized. Uh, this verse, if taken at face value, means there's no such thing as an immutable pre-creation divine decree because God is declaring things to people in time and he's declaring new things, uh, things that are not immutable, things that change, uh, things that uh, aren't pre-creation. And it's, it's a flexible decree that has multiple outcomes and multiple paths. 
And that, that should be pointed out that if this verse is true, your theology is false. This is a proof text against your, your theology, not for it. That he's making power claim rather than a, uh, like a fortune telling, like, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen so that you know that I'm the real God. For instance, in Isaiah 41, 41, 26, he says, who told about this from the beginning that we might know and from times past that we might say. So uh, McLeod's responding like he would to someone in he's, if he's debating divine foreknowledge of all things. So he's, he's right now debating people who think that God predestined all things. And Drew McLeod's pointing out that this is a power text about God doing his divine decree. So maybe might not be as effective using this strategy to these people who kind of agree with the premise that this is a power claim, that God, their, their claim is that not only is this a power claim, but it extends to all things to ever exist. And so maybe taking a different approach where, you know, this, this has a beginning. It's two people. It's for a specific purpose. It's to teach them who the real God is. Uh, frivolously, uh, it doesn't work. These people reject God even after these attempts. It's not about divine meticulous determination of all things. It's about God attempting to prove himself to a wayward creation. That's what's going on there. He is right. No one announced it and told it. No one heard your words. And then uh, previously, I don't want to spend too much time here, but he talks about um, stirring up the king from the south. And he says to these, do something so that we can see it and know that you are. And so this passage in Isaiah 46, 10 is God saying, I declare the end from the beginning so that when I declare it and you see it come to pass, then you know that it was me, Yahweh, that did it and that I'm the real true God yeah. that you should worship. Okay. Ephesians 1, 11 says, in him also we've obtained. An so the points that they would disagree with, which is the points that they would disagree with is what you want to emphasize in your response, that God is attempting to convince someone of something, which is completely against immutable pre-creation divine decree. God's declaring to people, the time is specified, it's not an eternal pre-creation divine decree. This is a proof text against their view. That, that, that can't be emphasized enough. They think it's a proof text for their view. Why? Because they're desperate for proof text, but it actually proves the opposite of what they claim. An inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his well, I think I heard you kind of say that, well, that doesn't mean every single meticulous individual thing. And yet um, the, the casting of lots, where everyone will live, the death of, of sparrows, every decision of kings, where we will live, where we will go, how long we'll stay there, what we'll do while we're there. And all of our decisions are from the Lord's thought, from his counsel. Why are we wrong to think that all things and according to the counsel of his will includes everything that happens? exegetically I'll, in Ephesians 1. What, what? Because all things often in the Bible doesn't mean all things. You know, even Paul points out, he'll put in sub, uh, subjugation all things under his feet. Uh, but but he's accepted because, you know, that's just a natural exception to all things. All things often doesn't mean. So it's not a proof text. If, if you have a text and the only way it's a proof text is if you have to assume uh, certain fixed meanings into that text, it doesn't actually prove your, your point. It's not a proof text. It's a tangential. It might emphasize a, a different proof text that already proves the point, but it, in itself, it doesn't prove what you're trying to prove. It's not a proof text if it can have a variant meaning. What is making you say that? I'll say this first thing and then I'll give Eric the rest of it. I would say that 
just because uh, God permits or determines like these things are underneath his purview, his sovereignty, his kingship does not necessitate an immutable uh, divine decree that's set before creation. It's just my brief thought, but I'll let yeah. Eric talk more about that. <laughs> yes. More about his thoughts since I've already done some. I would say that your error specifically comes from taking wisdom literature as didactic yeah. theological teaching yes. instead of general principles that are meant to make certain points. And I think that uh, most scholars would agree that that's what Jesus, you know, you quoted from Proverbs, uh, some of the ones you're quoting, and also that's what Jesus is doing. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, is, and, and that kind of thing is, wisdom literature brought forward into the new testament and he reinterprets some of it but but that's the genre he's operating under uh so if i god think is, that's go ahead. go ahead i'm sorry well no that's the, that's the beginning of the misunderstanding that you're seeing kind of a causal chain of theological teaching and uh we don't see that we see that as general principles in wisdom literature uh and then i was going to comment on ephesians one but if you want to ask me something else that's totally fine can I add? Can I add to that 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 um, I think the error is in that's a great thing. So if you're tag teaming and there's an answer that's thrown out, you want to tag on and add something else before they get another question, and then you get two responses to the same question. It's a it's a great tactic, and you see them them pause and then they contemplate the second answer. Two answers, one question. And seeing God's uh, general sovereignty and providence, either permitting or determining everything comes to pass and then extrapolating that to a divine immutable decree without explicit inductive evidence. If God does not have an immutable pre-creation decree that encompasses all that comes to pass, <laughs> including the free actions of creatures, of humans, how is God able to make predictive prophecies which entail untold numbers of free actions and decisions on the part of men, such as the betrayal of Christ for 30 pieces of silver, uh, that was a prophecy in the book of Zechariah uh, eleven thirteen. I took thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Is it possible that <laughs> again, if if uh, thirty pieces of silver, if it never happened in the New Testament, if there's no silver mentioned, there is no possible world where we're, we're for a second. There are no possible worlds in where any atheist would turn back to that passage and be like, "Look at that! That prophecy wasn't fulfilled. This is not a prophecy. It's it's just." Yes, that's not what they're using the text for. It's it's not this, oh, here's the exact future. And what God is so incompetent that he can't get a specific uh, number of pieces of silver to pay for a specific event. God can't do that. That's that's not within his purview. He he can't make that happen unless he meticulously controls all things. This 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 is what we're dealing. I was I was on Clubhouse, I was talking to this lady, and she said, Well, if God didn't know the future then he couldn't have stopped someone from pushing Jesus off a cliff. God can't stop someone from pushing Jesus off a cliff. What's your view of God? What's your view of God that precludes God not able to give basic physical protection to someone from something? What? What? This, uh, this and the, the absurdity of this needs to be emphasized if emphatically to the audience that your position on this is basically saying God is massively incompetent. If God can't get a certain amount of payment for a certain action, 
sometime in the future, if you can't do that without meticulous control of all things, then, then your view is God is incompetent. That's not our view. Our view is that God can raise new children of Abraham from these rocks. God is more innovative than you. God is smarter than you. He's not limited by your lack of creativity. A job the Baptist, I'm with John the Baptist. I take John the Baptist's position that you don't know what you're talking about. You're not innovative. You're not God. And uh, your perceived uh, problems that God has to deal with are inconsequential to God because he's smarter than you. He's smarter than you. That Judas could have decided to betray Christ for 20 instead of 30 pieces of silver, or that he could have had a change of heart and decided to believe the gospel. And the Bible would celebrate that. If Judas had a change of heart, the I Bible, think that God, God would not be like, oh, I'm, I'm thwarted. It'd be so terrible. Uh, God would, would, would rejoice over the one lost sheep returning to him. If Peter, he's, if, if Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, and then he didn't, guess what's going to happen? Guess what's going to happen? Same thing with Nineveh. God's going to rejoice that the wayward person is returning. And guess what would happen? If that was recorded in the Bible, the Calvinists, they would look at it and they'd say, Oh, this is this, you know, it's kind of like Nineveh where, um, you know, God, it was kind of conditional. It's like this thing will happen, but then the circumstances changed. And, and so then the people repented and this, this whole verse where Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. They would treat that exact same way. They wouldn't, they wouldn't say, Oh, prophecy is thwarted. The whole Bible should be thrown out the window. They would be saying, this is a good example of prophecy, giving a warning that, that causes changes in individuals. The Calvinist would be saying that. That would be their argument. These are not proof texts. These are not proof texts. They literally treat the same circumstances differently depending on whether it's a good talking point or not. Stuart and my uh, debate partner's answers might differ from this, but I think that in short, God declaring that something's going to happen and then having the infinite wisdom and power and knowledge to be able to bring that to pass to influence free agents so that they say, Hey, you know, 30 pieces of silver is a good idea. And he knows people such that he can bring these prophetic things to pass. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's difficult for instance, for God to, without having made a divine immutable decree that encompasses all meticulous detail to see to it that the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. So are you saying it is a real possibility that Judas could have betrayed him for 20 instead of 30, as the prophecy says in Zechariah? I think that I think that whoever I think that as soon as God declares something, there's some sort of uh, controversy that atheists point out about the exact payment method or amount or something like that. I'd have to pull it up, but I think that that does exist. I'll have to go look it up where I think the claim is that one of the authors are kind of fudging the numbers in order to make this a true parallel, but I don't, I don't, I don't have the details right now. That specific thing is going to come to pass and he can bring it to pass without having to be in meticulous control or having immutably decreed everything. <laughs> so, so my answer is, is basically no. Okay. So, so, so it's not possible that he could have betrayed him for 20 pieces. It's not possible. Not not once God declares this is what is going to happen, then that thing is going to happen. Otherwise, so yeah, if God wanted thirty pieces of silver, He could like literally take over someone's body and uh, force them to do that. You know, how does God operate in the Bible? We we actually see it play out. Anytime that the Bible describes God doing something, God needs a kid named. 
Well, he makes the person mute until that person names their kid that specific thing. God wants the people preached to. He gets that guy swallowed by a fish if the guy tries to run away. We see practically how God brings about the things that he wants to bring about. It's not like a guessing game. It's not like secret where we just have to speculate about, oh, how would God make this happen? We got practical examples of God doing things. We could just grab one of those and talk about this is this is how God does stuff. The mechanism is not a secret. We, it's not guesswork. We, we, we don't have to speculate about these things. Like you guys have mentioned, he would be lying. So in, in James chapter four, we have uh, a principle that James lays out for us that instead of saying, I'm going to do this or that tomorrow, we should say, if it's the Lord's will, I'll do this or that tomorrow. It's a general principle, not applied yeah. to anything in particular. No, it, no, no, no. <laughs> 100% wrong. Uh, it applies to something very particular. The coming apocalypse that they all thought was coming. Uh, they they they're, don't, don't have hopes for tomorrow because any day now, God could bring back legions of angels, round up the wicked, kill all the wicked, round up the righteous, bless the righteous. This is why, this, this, this was their constant hope throughout the New Testament. This is what they wanted. They were expecting this to happen. And so for this reason, you're not going to be storing up earthly treasures. For this reason, you're going to start a commune in Acts uh, and hold all things in common. It was a bad idea long term because guess what? The apocalypse never happened. God never came back with legions of angels and rounded up all the wicked and killed them. It did not happen. It did not happen. And so that's what the immediate context is, the coming apocalypse. This is why This is why I don't say what you're going to do tomorrow because as, uh, as the parable of of the wedding bride states, it could happen at any moment. This thing was immediately coming in their minds. What is what is your understanding of that? Does that is that somehow limited to particular things, or does this mean that God has a a, a will about everything that will happen in the future? As what, which is our position? What 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 is your understanding? Yeah, that, that God God could God could at any time frustrate your plans, and that God could 100%. at any time. Uh, insert himself into creation such that what you thought was going to happen doesn't happen. Uh, and also not just that, but also he allows it to happen. I think I'm saying the same thing twice in different words, but that he allows you to do those things. And so in that sense, it's his will that you would do those things. Uh, so yeah, he either determines or allows all things that comes to, that come to pass. Does God know the future in meticulous, exhaustive detail? So watch, watch what's happening here. And so um, there, here's where they branch off in a path. And uh, Eric's saying one thing, Drew's saying another. And then they start talking about, well, this is what I think. This is what I think. It needs to be brought back to the Bible. This is actually absolutely irrelevant to an immutable pre-creation divine decree. Unless they could tie it to... That's not even the topic of the debate. The topic of the debate is... Does the Bible teach an immutable pre-creation divine decree? So if they want their question to have some relevancy that could tie back to the point of the debate, they would ask the question in such a manner as, does the Bible teach that God knows the future in meticulous divine detail? And uh, you could either uh, humor them and say, uh, for the sake of this argument, we'll just say yes, and then deal with their argument from there or say, well, no, I disagree with it. Uh, my friend here, he agrees with it. Um, but uh, just make your point and then we can deal with it as it comes. But we get into this point where it's like, well, here's what I think about this and here's what I think about that. And it sidetracks from what they're actually trying to prove. 
immutable pre-creation divine decree. Does the Bible teach that? They start talking about what's your beliefs about this specific subject. Uh, I, I think it's it's a definite going off the path. Yes. Eric's, Eric's answer is yes. My answer is yes, but it's not in exhaustive, definite detail. So no sense. Explain yourself. So then we just start getting into very uh, minute technicalities. I think that the future is partially open and partially determined. So God has some possibilities in mind for what might or might not occur. Like when he says in Exodus 13, 17 or so, that if the Israelites were to cross a particular land that they might or perhaps might go back to Egypt. Um, so I think that there are some possibilities that are open and something. You got to tie it back to the debate. You just say, you know, there, there's a time where God says, I'm not going to lead these guys over here because they might in fact do this, which is totally counter to eternal, immutable, pre-creation, divine decree. There's times where God tests people to know what their heart is, which is completely counter to an immutable pre-creation divine decree. And they're they're going to start getting punched in the face because that's the position they're trying to argue. And if they just let you keep talking, you're just going to be keep on pu pulling out verses that uh, thwarts what they're trying to get at. So what, what they're probably trying to get at, and I don't, I don't know offhand, I, I must have missed it. I, would, I think they're trying to get at is if you believe that God knows the future in meticulous detail, then basically the creation act is itself uh, eternal, immutable, divine decree because it's unthwartable. And so that's probably where they're trying to go. But again, the debate's about what does the Bible teach? So if you refocus to the Bible, you don't have to have this theologically intricate uh, uh, little debate. You, so you could just say the Bible just doesn't teach that. You could assume that from certain passages in the Bible um, but it's it's not definitive, and there's a lot of evidence in the Bible where God changes his mind, and he's surprised by creation, and he's thwarted often in what he wants to do by his creation. And so there's good evidence to say no. And then they're put back on the defensive. I want to keep them on the defensive. Things that are determined, some things that are settled, like we've talked about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, the Israel being sacked by um Babylon and stuff because God says this is what's going to happen and so on. Okay, so so God then does learn. He acquires knowledge. Just say yes. Did not have before. <laughs> I would say that the modes of his knowledge change from might be's to would have beens and so on. Like if 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 God says this will happen, for instance, even on uh your view you know i didn't time this out but it could have been you could have been pretty easy you just you just say well if you want to say yes um that's that that's a valid way to characterize uh, my beliefs that's fine um but you probably don't need to get into technical nuance i don't know what it's adding to the conversation it might actually it might actually be thwarting their point if they are trying to go for that thing where it's if you believe in meticulous divine foreknowledge then that's the immutable decree so they they might be thwarted by this if God says, I don't think there's a follow -up. and then it happens. And then in his mind, he knows it as has happened. Then that's a change in God's mind as far as modes of thinking. And there are other passages that do seem to indicate that God uh, experiences new things. Like when God, the son became flesh, he then knew what it was like to be flesh 
that he did not experientially know before. Yeah, so you could just say, yeah, God gains experiential knowledge all the time. The Bible says God became flesh. That's a change in God. God changes. God learns. God has new experiences. And then they, guess what? Guess what? where that puts them? If you if you explain it like that, then, then if they want to try to counter that, then they're trying to uh, in, counter the incarnation, which puts them in the territory of, of heresy. And it's it's a great position to put your debate deponent, depo opponents into that territory where they are bordering on what mainstream Christianity declares as heresy. And uh, it's, a, it's a good position. In, in what sense, in, in Acts chapter 4, in what sense did God predestine Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews and Gentiles to do whatever his plan had predestined to take place. And, and how do you? That's actually uh, worded fairly, fairly uh, honestly, and as an open-ended question to allow you to explain your position on that. So, uh, good job, John O'Rourke. That was honest dealing with uh, debate interaction. You take that that he predestined them to do whatever they did, various things that they did. How do you take that? that God knew what it would take in the time and the place that he chose to become flesh and enter into uh, history. And he knew intimately and in detail and in a way that we can't fathom uh, all the inner workings of the motivations of the people in power that would need to be determined in order to get his. So is he is he losing you? I think he's losing half the audience with this answer because it's very nuanced. It could easily be like, well, God wanted to affect uh, uh, some sort of atonement through Jesus's death. And so this is just about Jesus's death. It's not about all the details. It's not about Pontius Pilate's name or what he had for breakfast or anything like that. It's a uh, God had a plan. He wanted a sacrificial lamb. And guess what? They played into it. It could have played out differently. Guess what? We have another example of a sacrificial lamb in the Bible. It's Isaac and he goes willingly. And uh, in uh, Josephus's account, Moses has a, or Abraham has a conversation with Isaac and explains to him what he's doing. And Isaac says, okay, dad, um, I trust your judgment. I trust God. I'm going to go along willingly to this sacrifice. So God could have done that and it would have fulfilled probably what's being talked about here as the plan. There's, there's no indication from it that Pontius Pilate was a critical element of the plan, only that their actions didn't thwart from what God was trying to accomplish, which is probably the immediate point to the audience. Plan accomplished. And he was able to do that without also at the same time meticulously determining, decreeing their evil desires. What is your understanding of the word predestined? It says proorizo to, to predestined whatever you your plan predestined Great question. to occur. Great question. What what their hands did was predestined by God. It doesn't sound like he's put everything in place in his infinite wisdom to make sure it would happen. Even the way you're saying that sounds like it it would probably happen, but it but it might not have. What is your understanding of pre, of the word proorizo predestined in that passage? He decided beforehand that certain things would take place. Whatever you decided beforehand, that doesn't mean you decided everything that happened. You didn't decide all of the intentions, evil desires of the men involved 
uh, in the Crusaders. And, and the word actually itself doesn't mean that he decided before the events happened. Often that prefix is used for like real time. When the Jews foreknew Paul, that means at some prior point they were they were knowing him. They were interacting with him. And when uh, people predestined an answer to the question of who is your neighbor, when Jesus said, who is your neighbor, the Jews predestined an answer. That means at some previous time, they specified an answer in real time during the exact same time these events are happening that we're talking about. It just means before this time. It doesn't mean before the events that we're talking about. It's before the current time and the current conversation. That's normally how the word is used. Of Jesus, good. Go does down. does that predestination of what happens include their evil desires and evil actions? No, I would no, say that he, uh, no. He, I, he, I would he say did that not decide their evil desires. Okay, time. go ahead. So, so when it says if we're comparing I, Acts two twenty three and Acts, what's that? Go you Acts, go ahead. First. Acts two twenty Acts two twenty three says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yep, lawless. They have men. a similar idea there, is that Jesus was delivered up according to a definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands yep. of lawless men. And in Acts four, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, who were partly responsible for his death, the Gentiles and the Jews, like the Roman soldiers and the Jewish crowds who called for his crucifixion, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. He's just talking about Herod's, you know things irrelevant to Jesus's crucifixion and, and Pontius Pilate, just what Pontius Pilate had for lunch or something like that? Or is it their actions that involved it, that resulted in the death of Jesus, their sinful actions? So you're saying it's not their sinful I would, actions. Either. I would say that, it, you know, we have, what we're having in mind here is outcomes of different things. So for instance, yeah, the, the strongest text among those two is the, you know, chapter four, verse 28, where it says to do whatever hand and purpose determined before to be done. So what, one thing we do when we're reading verses to understand what's going on, <clears throat> always run through the basics. Who's talking? Who are they talking to? What are they trying to communicate to the people they're talking to? Is this adversarial? Do the people believe something specifically that that this this is trying to correct? And so what it seems like is happening in this context is that the Jews are being explained that the death of Jesus did not thwart God's plans. And so I think that's the extent of what we can force out of it. I don't think that we could, uh, I think it would be very counterintuitive to assume that he's trying to communicate that, oh, uh, God, God made Pontius Pilate kill Jesus. Ta-da rather than God used these people to accomplish his plan that he had decided to accomplish. I think that's more reasonable of a take on this. And I would say that he's talking about Herod and he's talking about Pilate. There are only a number Something's of out on. desired outcomes to bring to pass, like Herod saying, nah, I don't want to deal with him. You know, you take him, Pilate. That's the only thing that has to be decisively influenced or brought to pass or determined. And with Pilate, the only thing that he has to do is go not like, you know, you have the you have him Jews, you know, you crucify him and so on. Uh, or what, I guess he washed his hands clean of it and then went forward with the, what they wanted to do. So I guess my answer and I think our answer is that God can predetermine uh, certain outcomes without having to be in meticulous control or having immutably decreed um, every exhaustive detail, especially because these are individuals whose hearts were already self-hardened and already poised to move in this direction. 
but you would you would agree self-determined if you will so yeah the big question is what was the plan specifically did the plan include pontius Pilate, or was the plan just to have jesus act as a sacrificial lamb because if it's if it's the latter one if it's the second one where it's just as a as a as a sacrificial lamb there's multiple ways to accomplish it that doesn't involve Pilate, but Pilate's actions still can contribute to that because guess what god's innovative and as Paul says, you know, maybe there's some way in God's will that I could come visit you. God's will is flexible. There's multiple paths to the same outcome. It's not like you have to control everything meticulously. A lot of different events can lead to the same conclusions, right? And God could bless all of uh, the world through Israel by raising up new children of Israel from the stones, or he could kill all of Israel and raise up a new people through Moses, or he could use the existing people. Or as Paul writes in, in Romans, he could grafted the Gentiles. He could grafted the Gentiles who are not even Jews. Not even Jews. That those are possible ways to fulfill the promise. God is innovative, and there's multiple solutions to the same problem. And so for them to point out these small details, oh, this had to be the specific way, this had to be the specific way, it uh, just fails to take into account all the possibilities the probabilities the vagueness of what plans are the vagueness of what the endpoints of these plans multiple ways to get to those endpoints if my goal is in war to take germany there's multiple ways for me to take germany i could say that's my plan to take germany and i'm going to use uh maybe the italians maybe they switch sides and you you hadn't anticipated them switching sides but now that they switched sides now you could use them or you could uh, subvert expectations, uh, uh, bring, uh, make the Russians fight the Germans too. Maybe you could orchestrate something like that and, and uh, get your enemies to work against your enemies to go towards your goals because you do things on the fly. You have your end goal, you have your plan, and as things develop, you work all things together for your will, right? You work all things together. That's, that's, that's part of the Bible where synergy where you work all things together that is not that's incompatible with the immutable pre-creation divine decree which again you know, probably a good thing to do put that on a piece of paper put that on a text file on your desktop so that your eye sees it every time that you're interacting with these guys to say even if we took this proof text the way that you want us to it doesn't prove an immutable pre-creation divine decree say that before every single answer, they're going to get the point. The audience is going to get the point and they're going to feel very much on the defensive every time they ask a question. The crucifixion of Jesus was predetermined. It was planned by God. So it would be included in some of those more general statements about all my all things work according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 46.10 says the Aethah of God, the plan of God, stands that term kum means unable to change now it sounded like you were just saying about the crucifixion that word has de God is definitive meaning possibilities it just happens to be but my really, theology if you're going to say that the big things i would think the biggest thing is the crucifixion of jesus that is a thought it is planned so what what i like to do i've 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 done it i don't i don't know of anyone else who's done the amount of work i've done looking into these phrases that the calvinists take and they apply to god they say oh Oh, uh, God's understanding is unsearchable or, or infinite. And then I go and I find that phrase and then I have it. Um, I find it in the Bible being used of the amount of grain that Joseph collects. It's being used in a hyperbolic sense. And so uh, if with a little bit of research, you could look into these and often they just have normal meanings that you would normally associate with 
you know, hyperbole or idiomatic speech or, you know, the Jews knew Paul from the beginning. That doesn't mean the beginning of time. It doesn't mean that. And so these innocent phrases are taken by them and they have strict theology forced on them that's just not apparent in the text. He's doing it here. I bet if I searched that word, I bet if I found all uh, times it's being used, it's going to be used in contexts that are not conducive for what he's claiming that that word means. Eternal life. God's eternal. There's a lot of eternal beings in the Bible who die. Angels are eternal beings, and they can be blotted out of existence in the Bible. There's an eternal kingdom that's given to King David, which is threatened to be taken away. Because the eternal language doesn't mean, it's not like a metaphysics thing. It's just normal language to, to connotate to us that this thing's not just going to die like a natural death, and it'll go on forever, uh, provided certain conditions continue. Right, the Bible doesn't talk metaphysics, it talks practicality. And so, what, what's the context? What words are being used? And do are those words used in any other context? And are they consistent with how they treat those words in those other concept contexts? The answer is always no, they don't. They they want a special plead. If a word we like is used in conjunction with God, it's used in conjunction with God, then it must mean our theology. And it is, it is decreed by God, and it is not changeable. Are you, are you saying it is changeable? I'm saying that everything that God announces is going to come to pass. For instance, you guys alluded to the, the serpent in the garden where it will bruise uh, his heel and so on, the seed and that, that, there, that as soon as he announces something is going to pass, to come to pass, that that particular element he is going to pr bring to pass, but in, at least on my view, he has different possibilities for how he can bring those different things to pass through his infinite wisdom and knowledge and so on. See, in order to get Jesus to the cross, though, there were a large number of, of events that had to take place, and I couldn't even begin. To what about, let me, let me throw this out. Could God have raised a new cross from the rocks and uh, a new Pontius Pilate from the rocks and a new group of Romans from the rocks to make it happen. Could could God conceivably have done that to make the cross happen exactly how you think that it was uh, predestined to happen? Well, is that a possibility? You know, if, if you do that and you've already alluded to, to John the Baptist and his criticism of the Pharisees for being less than innovative and in they're thinking about how God must operate, it, it will really drill the point in pointing out that they're the Pharisees and they don't think God can do things and God's more innovative than them. That's a great point. The John the Baptist story is one of my favorite. To tell you how many billions of different events need to take place to get him to the cross. But let's take one, and it's a sinful action of Pontius Pilate. When the Jews demanded, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, the murder insurrectionist, could Pilate have said, no, no, we're gonna, I'm going to release Jesus and we're going to keep this murderer you know, behind bars? Because he ultimately, wrongfully, let the, the criminal go. So could Pilate have conceivably <laughs> well, that, done, the, that violate done the God's thing decree. that would be more morally correct, which is keep the murderer in jail and let the innocent guy go? Could he have done that? Yes. Okay, so in that case then, are you saying that it's possible that Jesus could have been set free and not gone to the cross? No, he would have been crucified, but maybe it would have happened a different way. Okay, so this, so this text in Acts 4, that the, the, what Pontius Pilate, for example, he's named, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, it, it doesn't, it, there's, there's the possibility that, that that plan is in flux. 
that God God can change it on on the fly. Is that what your position is? That say say Pontius Pilate had a change of heart and let uh, Jesus go, he'd have to change the plan. I think that uh, I think that. Well, when when was that plan made? Was it made on the fly as uh, Pontius Pilate rose to power? Again, the predestination word doesn't necessarily denote any specific time, not even prior to the events it's describing. But um, again, uh, this has nothing to do with a mutable pre-creation divine decree. Let's. So I would maybe just for sake of argument, grant them everything they're saying. Okay, God took control of everything in the world 10 years prior to Jesus and 10 years after. Every meticulous thing, every uh, falling leaf is now controlled by God. Ta-da, God could do it doesn't prove that God has an immutable pre-creation divine decree because really if if that God can do things like that 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 that's within the realm of possibility there are people who have held those views traditionally that meet all your criteria meet all your proof texts accept all your proof texts exactly as you want those proof texts to be read but they don't agree with this immutable pre-creation divine decree it's irrelevant to this debate once once things are set in motion, and and Pilate is in a position of no return, being self-determined that this is just going to happen. That that's uh, you know definitely going definitely going to happen and not going to happen otherwise. But I think that you know if you take for instance where Jesus says in the garden, "Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me." It seems like Jesus believes that there's some other way. For him to do this and in john 10 he says no one takes my life from me i lay it down willingly and so it's not as though god you know jesus just sort of stepped in and was like let it happen to him you know he was going to the cross willingly um so i don't know if that helps answer your question i, I Uh-oh, I was muted. Idol Killer said I was muted. I, I mute sometimes because I like cough, and so then I go on mute. So that's what the, that dead air is, me being muted. Um, so I was just saying that this is a weird, weird debate because they seem to be in data collection mode where they're asking questions. They don't get very much pushback. You don't get very much follow-up, and they they uh, assumably don't do anything with this data. It's, it's a really... Hard thing to do to just accumulate all this data and then just lump it into all of all of your final words and final thoughts. Uh, you you, you want to use the data as you accumulate it, or else it's like lost in translation and you can't do anything with it. So, in a cross examination, you want to press them on certain points, certain points that you think they're inconsistent on, to illustrate weaknesses to the audience in real time. And it needs to be consistent. If you're just in data collection mode, the audience is not going to – they're not going to perceive it as you actually have a strong point. They're going to um, probably sympathize sympathize with your opponents who you're cross-examining. you got to find weaknesses in the argument and just keep pressing them, press them until they break. I think the, the answer to my question would that's be – time, guys. That's time okay. right there. That's time. All right. So, uh, all right, Patrick and sorry, uh, Drew and Eric, you now have 20 minutes to cross them and John and Patrick.
Eric, do you want to start with the, our first three questions? Yes, I do. I, I'm going to find them. Though. So here I go. So it's in. It's it's it's. Uh, if if you can see my highlight. Yeah. Yeah. They must be doing like a screen sharing uh, or yes. something. Uh, can you give uh, one clear passage that teaches a pre-creation divine decree that yeah. includes yes. Yes. decreeing disobedience to God's divine? Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, well, the, the debates about God having a mutable pre-creation divine decree, I would just start with, what is your best proof text for this? You want to prove that God has an immutable pre-creation divine decree. What is your best evidence? Then you turn there and you ask them questions. Oh, does this prove that it's immutable? Does it prove it's pre-creation? Is it decree in the sense that you want? And you just expose their best proof text is not a proof text for their belief. You won the debate. They don't have any proof text. They just come to the text and just assume their theology. Uh, it's, it's a good strategy, but now he's adding qualifications on it. Um, uh, add a proof text that the divine decree has about immorality or something like that that's that's not what the debate's about law for man we just gave you two acts 2 23 and uh, acts 4 26 to 28 the, the most heinous acts of evil ever committed in the history of time um were predestined the term proorizo means to destine to determine beforehand no <laughs> uh, by god would you would you agree that this pre that this particular passage does not make uh, a pre-creation in which the, which the passage that the passage that you just quoted so one thing i like to do when i got calvinists on the hook i like to read the passage from clement <clears throat> clement about uh about predestination where the jews predestined an answer to jesus and i read them the paragraph and i say which word in there is pro arizo and they won't know they have no idea they have no idea because the word the word just doesn't mean what they claim it means. They, they all every single time it's used in the ancient world, it could mean something very differently. That someone's just specifying something previously, um, in real time during the event that's being described. The, the Jesus, uh, Jesus asked, "Who is your neighbor?" And the Jews predestined an answer, which means at the time that Jesus asked them, they stated this answer. That, that's how the word is used. And, and it's just a normal word. It, it just doesn't have this theological baggage. It doesn't mean what they claim. Their, 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 their claims are wrong at face value. And you wouldn't know this. Growing up a Christian, you would not know this because no one, no one puts in the effort to find these things out. Because why? Because they have a system. The system's working. If they hijack these words, if they have these words, and then they're, they're always ready to throw these words out. This is the word that's being used, and this is what the word means. And no one calls them to task. No one calls them to task ever, and so they keep getting away with it. Uh, you got to shut that stuff down. Shut it down. That's that's part of, I think, my value added to the whole debate is I help shut down these hijacking words by just doing simple cross-reference text search in uh, ancient manuscripts to see how else the word is used elsewhere about beings who are not God. It doesn't mean what they claim. Acts okay, 4 does not talk about immutability and pre-creation language and that that's kind of like inferred. No, if God predestined yeah. it, it is immutable. Because God <laughs> is, is the one. If he predestines something you guys have said <laughs> yourself. If he predestines it, it is going to happen. Yeah. So, okay. So, so yeah. So it's, it's immutable. But would you agree that it's that it's inferred that it's prior to creation? 
No, because pra orizo means to destin beforehand. The prefix pra on the term orizo, they're in Greek. You didn't understand the question. to destin beforehand. And whenever every other place the term pra orizo is used in Ephesians chapter 1 um, and other places, it refers to before the foundation of the world. John, do you want to say anything? Yes, so if, if predestination meant before the foundation of the world automatically, then you wouldn't find context where it has to specify before the foundation of the world, this and this was predestined. It'd be automatic, right? It's it's assumed that that's what you're talking about if the meaning was implicit in the word. The fact that it is used in con some context with the phrase foundation of the world it proves the fact that it's not implicit in the word, that, uh, that the word doesn't imply that uh, all this predestination is happening timelessly eternal. And so it, it, it's actually the opposite of what they claim. The, the fact that it's found with the, the from the foundation of the world proves that it's not a timeless uh, pre-creation decree. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll carry on. Okay. So you want to say something else? Uh, Me? <laughs> No. There's ways to smuggle your ways of reading into questions. So you could you could start with uh, well, uh, if um, so, if if you don't think it's a pre-creation decree, and uh, you could say what in context makes you think it's pre-creation? They'll say, oh, it's used over here in this verse in conjunction with foundation of the world. You would say, wouldn't that assume the opposite? And so now you're putting you're you're planting ideas into the audience's mind. You're you're doing the thinking for the audience. Whereas, does their answer make sense and actually follow from the evidence presented? And then they actually have to justify their answers. So uh, you could just keep pressing something in various ways and different angles until it breaks. There's nothing about the verse that implies a divine immutable decree from before creation. Ask Eric if he wants to follow up question. <laughs> yeah, there's kind of like a delay on the thing. Um, so we kind of miss each other a little bit here. Um, so one, the question that needs to be asked is what does the Bible have to say? What combination of words does the Bible have to say in order to make you think that God uh, can have a decree that's not immutable, that can be thwarted, that there's things that happen that God didn't decree? What combination of words, if found in the Bible, would lead you to that conclusion? Um, if you have something, I was almost there on something. If you wait for it. Well, so I, up on I was going to ask, okay, so on shortly. what basis do you conclude that the word decide beforehand means prior to creation, just by the word decide beforehand? Ephesians can can God not, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Can God yeah. not decide to do things beforehand immutably, but not prior to creation? By just using the word predestined. Go ahead, start, and I'll. Yeah, Ephesians chapter one, uh, verse four and following. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption. That's a that's what's called an apposition. Um, in Greek, there the, the verse five, having predestined us to adoption, is a further explication of what it means to be chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Being predestined to adoption is simply. A further explication of what it means to be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. I don't think you can have a clearer statement than before the foundation of the world, and it's tied directly to the predestination of God's elect people to adoption. But right, well, it's not it's not our turn to give positive uh, case positions on what we believe on those passages. Okay, well, it's, 
some things about that. So um, if that let's let's say his his claim's true, and it's a plausible claim that it's repeating the same thing that God chose us to be adopted, and He chose us before the foundation of the world. Does that mean all choosing, anytime anything's ever chosen, that that also is before the foundation of the world? Even if it's a parallel statement, it doesn't mean what they're claiming, and that could be pointed out. So, it, um, in it could be pointed out in the form of a question. But um, Eric. Well, so so the just to be clear, so I, so I understand. So the uh, decide beforehand from Ephesians one is what the term decide beforehand means throughout Scripture, and so then we understand it that same way in Acts four. Is that right? It's it's partly the the the, the decree of God. Since it's our position that he has decreed whatsoever comes to pass, and right. that, as Patrick had said, is predestined and is therefore immutable. See, we have we you know take the position that God knows the future in exhaustive detail because he has decreed the future in exhaustive detail, and that means that he had to have this plan before creation in order for things to take to fall out according to his plan. So, for example, something very early on. God's plan um, that there would be a fallen human race that he could save a multitude from. He had to plan that before he created Adam, for example. But it includes everything that, that happens in his creation so that so that he can work all things for his glory and for a believer's good. As Romans 8, 28 says, he works all things for good for those who love him. Right. In Isaiah 46, okay. 10, when it says that the, the counsel or the etzah, the plan or decree of God shall stand, that plan declares the end from the beginning. And the beginning can only be the, the beginning of, of creation. <laughs> it could only be. God created the heavens and the earth. If it's a So a good follow-up question is, uh, when the Bible says that God knew Paul from the beginning, is that the beginning of creation? And if they say yes, if they fall for the trap, you'd be like, oh, the verse actually says the Jews knew Paul from the beginning. Does that mean... You just say, oh, oops, I misquoted the verse. The verse actually says the Jews knew Paul from the beginning. Does that mean the beginning of creation? And then, uh, then they're they're uh, caught in the contradiction of how they treat the Bible when it deals with various subjects. If it's if it's the Jews knowing Paul from the beginning, then, you know, it's, it's not preordination of all things. If it's Luke knowing everything perfectly from the beginning, oh, then it's not uh, their theology. But if it's God knowing all things perfectly from the beginning, if it's God uh, knowing Paul from the beginning, oh, it's definitely their theology. The, the plan that stands fast and does not change, that Hebrew term kum means does not change. Um, if it's from, if it declares the end from the beginning, it has to be before the beginning. How do you know so, that from the beginning means before the beginning of creation instead of from the beginning of something else in that passage? Because go ahead, John. We can. You can no, you're good. Well, I'll just say what, what we have. What we have shown in, in some places in Scripture, it's explicitly said that God has determined things before the foundation of the world. Um, you know, we mentioned Ephesians one, but even First Corinthians two, verse seven, it says, "But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory." Okay, before the ages began. Um, so I'm going to get us to hit pause. I'm going to have to get going pretty soon here. We're already at about two two hours and uh, 20 minutes. But I would like to talk about that Clement reference, the use of pro arizo. And here's what Clement writes. He says, uh, the second in order, and not any less than this, than, than this, he says is, 
Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This is Jesus talking. Consequently, God above thyself. And on his interloker, inquiring, who is my neighbor? He did not, in the same way as the Jews, specify the blood relation or the fellow citizen or the proselyte or him that had been similarly circumcised or the man who uses one in the same law. Which word is pro-arizo? Which word is? And uh, um, typically they will, will have no idea. It's the word specify. It's an answer to a question. Uh, Jesus answered a question, and the Jews predestined a different answer. Uh, Jesus predestines a different answer. It just means specify. You, you specify something previously in real time during the event that's being described is what happens. And so um, here's the other use that's interesting. This is Plutarch. Plutarch's ancient historian, uh, wrote a lot. He has some interesting stuff on uh, Homer and Plato. So here's, here's what he writes. Let so much suffice for general occasions of freedom of speech. There are also particular occasions which our friends themselves furnish that one who really cares for his friends will not neglect but make use of. Which word is predestination? Which word is controlling all things? Which is which word is before the foundation of the world? This does these people pro-arisoed something. Which one is it? Uh, they won't know. It's it's furnish. It's it's furnished. They themselves furnished. Uh, in at some previous occasion, there was a conversation, and then the, someone did something and answered in a certain way. Uh, that's pro arizo. That's what it means. That's 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 what's going on there. Um, but uh, it's, it's interesting how language is hijacked and how it's used, and it's used as a blunt tool, and just the normal normal way we understand language. How language is fluid. How words don't have definitive meaning, that words only have meaning in context. You have to understand who the audience is, what's going on, what, what particular thing is being argued in the context, and those give meaning to words. All those things are discarded when we start dealing with the Bible. We start dealing with the Bible as if it's like a technical manual, like a mechanical thing for, for some engine that won't work unless you have everything very specific with very specific meanings. But language doesn't work like that. The Bible of the New Testament is all letters. People are speaking to each other in colloquial terms, like, like normal speaking conversations in order to affect some sort of uh, ideological change. They're trying to convince, it's advocacy, it's advocacy. It says, no, don't leave, we have all night. I gotta run to the bathroom. I also gotta check to see how much water damage is in my house. I think I got all sorts of vents just filled with water from my little girl. And she just left the sink running in, uh, and in my bathroom and it freaking flooded and it's like, ugh. So I don't know, maybe I got a lot of water damage in my house, things like that. But we are at uh, two minutes and 30. Um, and I'm also losing my voice. So I do coughing and stuff like that. But good baby girl, vicious perspective, good baby girl. Yeah, she, she shook up, she's lying to me. She's I like, did you do it? She's like, no. I'm like, go turn on the faucet and see if she could reach. And of course she can, I've seen her do it before. And she's like, I can't reach the faucet. I'm like, you can reach the faucet. Go reach the faucet. Go turn that faucet on. I've seen you do it before. Go turn it on. She's like, I can't reach. I know you can reach. This this lie is ineffective. I know the answer already. It's a known, it's a known answer question. And so uh, those those are things, known answer questions. God could have been using a known answer question in the garden, uh, but it's a way to acquire information. It's a way to see how people will react when they're confronted about something to see if someone's going to lie to you or if uh, they're going to play act. Great thing to do if you're ever, let's say you're at work 
And uh, you know someone's lying to you to expose them in their lies by answering questions or asking questions that you know the answers to already so that they trap themselves and then you have them dead to rights. Fan fantastic. But we will probably cut off there. I think this is a very good debate. I think there there's a very strong opening, very strong opening. Um, but uh, I, it, it is kind of kind of uh, bad that there was that immediately immediate rebuttal before the opening. If only that immediate rebuttal would reinforce those points in the opening, prime the audience, prep the audience for what the audience needs to look for. And so that you have the audience mind automatically thinking responses to all their proof texts as they ask those proof texts. You want the audience doing the work for you. You want to prime them how to think. That way, that way they're not being uh, they're not accepting these guys' frame of the debate. Remember, the Calvinist frame of the debate is we want to debate the debates about immutable pre-creation, divine decree. They actually seem to actually want to debate does God control all current things? That was their actual debate. And somehow there's some sort of leap of logic which gets them to an immutable pre-creation divine decree. It just wasn't present in any of their proof texts. Just not there. So you all handled it like pros. Yeah, a very, very good debate. I would suggest it to anyone to watch, especially that opening, especially the framing, especially setting up the audience for expectations, setting their expectations. You set the expectations, and then, then when those expectations materialize, you point out that you stated these, these things would materialize, and they did materialize. And that will get the audience focusing on the structure of the argument rather than the data. How are these people arguing? Is their argument process valid? Are, are we seeing their attempted manipulations? Can we see through see through their strategy? That's that's how that's a better way better way to frame debates. But anyways, um, questions or comments? Let's put that down below. Thank you for watching.